VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Thursday, March the 23rd. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly. Fonz King is sitting back in the producer's chair this morning, so you'll be speaking with Fonz when you pick up the phone, give us a call in the queue and on the air. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211, or elsewhere, toll-free, long-distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, a pretty messy morning. I wasn't expecting it to be quite this stormy out this morning. It's a wonder the schools aren't closed, tongue-in-cheek. All right, big thanks to everyone at VOCM Cares, our new executive director, Sonia Smith, the team at Ronald McDonald House Charities. Yesterday, during the Radiothon, there was uh, some $33,000 raised for the ongoing operations at Ronald McDonald House. You can still take the opportunity to make a pledge. Just go to their website, which is simply uh, rmhcnl, so Ronald McDonald House Charities NL.ca, and you can make your donation there today. All right. So last night, Conor McDavid, of course, Edmonton Oilers, great, scored his 60th goal. It was on this date. In 1994, that the great one, Wayne Gretzky, scored his 802nd goal, of course, eclipsing the then-standing record of 801 scored by Gordie Howe. Now, no one's ever going to touch his total points record, which is 2,857 points. No one even close. No one else has 2,000 points. And there's only one active player in the top 30 of all-time goal scorer leaders in the NHL. That, of course, is Alex Ovechkin. He's got 820. It really does look and feel like Ovechkin will maybe catch Gretzky on the goal-scoring list, but it was today in 94 that the great one took out Howe on the record label. All right, on the record label, on the record goal-scoring list. You know, there is an attachment, and a lot of attention has come to Newfoundland and Labrador when people talk about the Titanic. It's become sort of a tourist option as well to go down and see the wreckage, which is really falling apart. But it was today, back in 1998, that the film won 11 major Academy Awards, tying the record set by Ben-Hur and later by Lord of the Rings' Return of the King. The Titanic really does have an unbelievably strange and tragic history, and interestingly enough, I've never even seen the movie. Have you seen Titanic Files? Probably, eh? Yeah, I haven't seen it. Anyway, let's keep going. I've been thinking about the whole grandparent scam story a lot. I suppose it's because I get a lot of stories shared with uh, via email about folks who have had a scammer attempt to separate them from their hard-earned money or they have fallen prey to one of the scammers because it's evolved so quickly. You know, whether it be with the way the number shows up on your caller ID and now with these deep fake audios where the grandparent swears it was their grandchild on the other end of the line. So over the course of just a few days, some nuisance uh, stole some $200,000 plus from uh, about eight seniors, and that's only the people that have come forward. So I've been thinking, and some people have made suggestions about what we can do to protect ourselves, because it's becoming more and more difficult to identify what is a scam. So this one lady, Margaret, made a terrific suggestion. Maybe between the grandparents and their grandchildren, Come up with a few key words just so that we can have some idea whether or not you are talking to your grandson or your granddaughter. That makes a bit of sense to me because you don't, doesn't take a lot of effort. And maybe if it's the same key word you share with all your grandchildren so that if and when someone calls and says they're in trouble or says they're hurt, we'll be able to figure it out. So 
whether it be, you know, some people use a safe word in some of their proclivities, but even if you just drop a, a word that has nothing to do with the conversation, like spaghetti <laughs> or whatever, or, you know, who's your favorite teacher? Just ask one question to probe a little deeper versus someone simply knowing your name and the name of your grandchild, but maybe that can go a long way to helping folks out. Just a suggestion. Okay, let's talk about education for a second. First off, I want to congratulate three people from this province who are amongst 90 young people selected to be Lauren Scholarship finalists. One of the most prestigious academic scholarships available to high school students in the country. Eventually, there will be 38, is it 38 or 36 people, will be, be given $100,000 for four years of undergraduate study. And there's right now, there was almost 5,000 applicants. 90 have been selected as finalists, including three from here. That's Caitlin Briant. She goes to Elwood High School in Deer Lake. Sarah Tulk goes to Holy Spirit High School in Conception Bay South. Max Pittman goes to Cornerbrook Regional High School out in Cornerbrook, of course. So even if they don't get to the final to be an eventual Lawrence Scholar, they will indeed get $5,000 just for making it to the final 90. Then there's another round of cutoffs where there's another financial award coming. But it is quite prestigious, and they should be quite proud of themselves. And it's not only about their academic work. It's the extracurricular, the volunteer work, and some of the giving back to their own community. That is considered by the volunteered assessors of their application. But congratulations to those three. They made it this far. Fingers crossed you get all the way over the finish line. $100,000. Unbelievable. And we can continue talking about education on any front. A lot of feedback continues to flow regarding school bus safety and that one bus out of Mount Pearl that spit a rear axle, even though it had been inspected prior to the school year, and again in January, we're told. So that and school, uh, school ground safety, whether it be in the playground or in the parking lot, those types of things are absolutely on the front of mind for a lot of families that have children in the K-12 system. I'll add to it. You know, let's not lose sight of what the Human Rights Commission decision was regarding Carter Churchill and the fact that the school district failed Carter Churchill without providing adequate American Sign Language teachers. And, of course, he sat there in his own silence for years. Really extraordinary when you sit back and think about it. But that's going to extend to students that need any sort of additional supports, you would imagine. I would add to it just the fact that we just mentioned the Lauren finalists, that there's also some additional challenges and requirements to deal with the most exceptional students, the most gifted students, so that they can indeed have all of their wits and smarts, and I would imagine not only intelligence, but determination, really challenged every day, as opposed to just being bored stiff because they're way ahead of the curriculum itself and or some of their peers in the classroom. But let's take that on. And on the school front, moving out to post-secondary, given the fact there was about a two-week interruption in classes at Memorial University, the students will be eligible for about a 10% refund. So that's going to add up to the somewhere around $3 million. And the, the university, of course, saved with some of the pay that was not flowing to the members of the faculty association, but a 10% rebate. But it does not include any sort of refund associated with the other fees on campus. So if you're a MUN student and you want to chime in and ask some of those questions, we're happy to have that conversation here today. All right. So, Michael Harvey, the province's Privacy and Information Commissioner, is in the news a lot in the recent past. And so he should be. Pretty critically important job. So we know that he's recused himself from the investigation into the cyber attack. You know, the allegations of inherent bias because he was an assistant deputy minister, sat on the board of the health information group. So he says he denies any of that. He's given it some careful thought. But he's going to stand back in an effort for the uh, investigation and the consequential report to be delivered in a timely fashion. He's also speaking out about duty to document. 
Now, it's a real crying shame that we even have to be talking about these things. It was in 2014 where former Premier Clyde Wells was talking about the requirement for duty to document. Now, three years ago, after the inquiry into Muskrat Falls, which is a glaring example of the lack of duty to document and where that got us. So, after the inquiry, the government said within six months we would have to update, modernize our duty to document legislation. They put forward some of the proposed amendments to the Management of Information Act. But Michael Harvey, once again, says it simply doesn't go far enough. There's still way too much in the way of latitude afforded the Cabinet. Now, the government will tell you that Michael Harvey still, in his role, has the ability to review matters and decide what should be released publicly. But this kind of stuff, you know, it was the unraveling of the PC government with Bill 69. We are all, I can imagine I'm speaking for most by saying, we're sick and tired of every attempt by every or any level of government to shield us from information which we absolutely should see. Now, there is going to be room for cabinet secrecy. There is going to be room for protecting commercial sensitivities, for dealing with human resource matters. But we simply can't allow governments to simply say, well, this is client uh, solicitor privilege. Who gets to make that determination? I would suggest Michael Harvey gets to make it. But if we are not going down this path appropriately, then every time you hear a politician utter the two key buzzwords of accountability and transparency, question that person hard. Because it does look like they continue to want to keep some information which absolutely belongs in front of us, the who knew what when, the documents uh, uh, and thought process that led up to important decisions being made. We won't be able to see every single thing under the hood. But Michael Harvey's right. This legislation or proposed amendments simply doesn't go far enough for our benefit. Fine and dandy for the benefit of elected officials, but that's not really my worry. Michael Harvey knows where the buck should stop. Michael Harvey knows what we should see and should not see. But just imagine all the massive decisions, including Muskrat Falls, which has not seen the appropriate duty to document, and consequently, we are down a 13, 14, 15 billion dollar hole of which is going to be extraordinarily difficult to climb out of for most rate-paying residents of this province. So we're hoping to speak with Michael Harvey today, if he has the time. I always appreciate his time, if indeed he has it. Sticking with Michael Harvey, he made a recommendation that the public get a chance to see some of the financial documents from St. John's Sports and Entertainment regarding some financial payouts to former employees and maybe to the growlers with some of those workplace incidents that we're not entirely really sure who was involved, who said what, who did what. But the city of St. John's, now Mr. Harvey's recommendation has power, but the city can indeed go to Supreme Court to block access to that information. Again, who are they trying to protect here? St. John's Sports and Entertainment, of course, drives some of their own revenue, but there's a very generous subsidy that comes from the taxpayers of this city. So, if we need to see who was paid what and the justification for, let's get at it. So maybe the mayor can come on and explain to us just why we should not be able to see those uh, dollar amounts because that impacts exactly what I pay, whether it be in fees for water or anything else in this uh, city, and, of course, with my property taxes, right? Because they were used to pay this money out the door. So, Mr. Harvey, in the news on a variety of fronts, if you want to tackle it, we can do it. All right, so it's budget day. Happy budget day to those of you who celebrate. You know, it's not unheard of for governments to have a bunch of good news announcements leading in to the budget, and there has been a lot of that in the recent past, and people are rightfully asking, where's all this money coming from? 
you know, it's been tradition for all governments in this province's history, certainly in the past 20 years, regardless of the stripe of those at the helm, they get a bit giddy and a bit of a tizzy when revenues are higher than anticipated or expected or forecasted, and consequently, some huge money goes out the door. You know, all the while, acknowledging there's a net debt of about $16 billion. Now, you can't choke the province off. You can't slash and burn the budget all the way down to where you jeopardize individuals and policies and programs. And some spending, they're not all created equal, right? So things like infrastructure spending do indeed come with some upside for individual residents of the province. Jobs, expanded tax base, and the like. Program spending, of course, has a long-term, if not a, a forever, air to it. But in the recent past, the numbers are pretty massive. It was just yesterday that the province announced they're going to spend $1.4 billion on the province's highways over the next five years. Now, the same people who complain about that are the same people who complain about the state of the roads. And there is an upside to having a viable roadway whether wherever you live. Now, there are some roads paved to areas where there's not much of activity happening. But so that's a big sum of money. And, of course, historically unprecedented, as we hear so often. And then we talk about some of the bonuses being afforded to doctors, and that's important. And then there's some $21-plus million for the next 10 family care teams. So it does add up very quickly to about what, $1.5, $1.6 billion just in the last week and a half to be announced. So what we're going to learn from the budget today, not really sure. Opposition members and others are talking about the pressures that we are all feeling or the vast majority of us are feeling, with cost of living. So, looking for your call on this today, what exactly do you think should be in the budget regarding some cost of living relief measures? So, the province has extended the half the uh, gas tax, provincial gas tax, extended for another year. There are some monies out there, whether it be for home heating subsidies and the ability to transfer from oil to electricity or what have you. But inside the world of cost of living, the two areas that are really getting, or I guess three of areas, is housing and rent, it's energy, and it's food. So where does the government have any levers they can pull inside a budget to deal with those matters? I'm looking for your suggestions. I have a few ideas, but of course, your ideas, your opinion is most welcome on the program. And in that, we're open also to speak with Dr. Chris Luscombe, the president of the NLMA. There's been a new fee model struck or I guess it has to be brought to the uh, province's family doctors to ratify. But there's going to be a 21% increase in their base pay. They've moved on for a strict fee-for-service model to something that includes more blended capitation. I'll admit very freely, I'm not 100% sure how, if it's fit to eat. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. And number two, it would be helpful, I think, if Dr. Luskin can explain exactly what this means. He says it's transformational, and hopefully that's a good thing in the effort to keep more and to recruit more doctors to the province. So there's going to be 80% of it will be in a base salary type approach, the other 20% inside this blended capitation world. What that means, I'm really hoping Dr. Luscombe has a few minutes for the show this morning so he can talk about that. And in the world of doctors, a question posed by a listener yesterday, it's good for the folks of Bonavista, terrific, that whether it be because of the $200,000 bonus over the course of two years offered to a doctor or doctors to go to Bonavista or New West Valley or Bay Vert, the question is, where did the doctors come from? You know, no one begrudges any community for getting a doctor. Good for you. I hope you all get a doctor. So whether it be inside these family care teams and where the staff come from, but uh, specifically the two doctors from Bonavista, are they new to the system? 
Do they come from another province or another country? Or are they simply moving from wherever they're practicing today to Bonavista? And again, no one begrudges Bonavista or anywhere else for having a doctor. Of course not. But I think that's a fair question. Where exactly did these two professionals come from? You want to take it on? Uh, we can do it. Uh, cost of living issues might get a little bit more complicated. There's a recent decision made by the Canadian Border Security about radiation screening. After 9-11, there was all sorts of increased safety measures taken, and we all know what they were. But apparently there's only five ports for international cargo to be screened for radiation. The closest one to us is Halifax. So in the port of Argentia, they don't have the ability to do this screening. Consequently, this is going to be an additional stop in Halifax for the screening for international cargo, which does not include the United States, before it makes its way to Argentia. Consequently, that has an obvious impact on the eventual cost of the goods that come into these thousands of international cargo containers that make their way to the port of Argentia as the initial stop in Canada. So that's going to be complicated. Hopefully with all the business that has been attracted to the port of Argentia, that that would be higher on their priority list because, you know, we can't just have all of these things coming out of nowhere. Safety is important, of course it is, but if we can indeed put that screening gear there, I don't know how much that would cost, maybe in the tune of millions, but that's going to have an impact on us, and that's coming very quickly. Uh, just a couple of quick ones. I mean, let's go to Ottawa for a second. So I don't even know where these stories begin and end or the veracity of any of these issues, and we just need the truth. So Liberal Member of Parliament Han Dong, he represents the folks in Don Mills. He's leaving the Liberal Party to sit as an independent. And this all stems from reports coming from two separate national security sources that this guy had been advising Beijing as an informal back channel. Apparently the PMO says he was not doing anything officially on behalf of the Prime Minister's office, but apparently was advising Beijing to hold off on any progress they were making on the release of Michael uh, Spavor and Michael Korvrig. They were in custody and being detained in China at that point for almost two years when this story starts. He denies it, but the story is also very contradictory, whether it be about how it would help the opposition party, that being the Conservatives, if Michael Spavor and Corbyn were remaining in detention or in custody in China, which was all nonsense and retaliation, I guess because our country decided to deal with Huawei executive Meng Wanzhou. I, I probably mispronounced that, but you know what I'm talking about. So what's going on here? And this is just one of those issues where we all just need the truth. I mean, there's going to be hyper-partisan tribal political watchers where they just want their party to come out on top. But this stuff is infuriating. If that's true, then there's so much more to this story. But I don't know. You know, it's hard to know who to believe on some of these issues, whether it be with Chinese interference and 11 different candidates and up and down the line. But this one here, imagine if that is actually the case, that a liberal member of parliament take of his own accord advising Beijing. I mean, talk about using two human beings as chess pieces. Unbelievable story, but we want to get to it. And of course, President Biden makes his visit to Canada, his first official state visit to the country, unlike presidents past that have made Canada their first stop. Here he comes. So what's on the table here? The standard stuff. Trade and, you know, some of the critical mineral issues and what have you. President Biden got off to a rough start, as so far as many Canadians are concerned, with the cancellation of the Keystone XL pipeline, for starters, some of the American protectionism legislation, which has been tempered somewhat. So there's lots, obviously, to discuss, but many folks will also be wondering about any conversation regarding the safe third country agreement and what that means for border security and the flashpoint that is Roxon Road. So if you want to take that on, we can do it. We're on Twitter. 
for VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to get an update about what's happening with Smith's ambulances. Their contract with Whitburn was canceled. Wade Smith of Smith Ambulances will kick us off. Don't go away. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, Wade Smith. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. What's the update this morning, Wade? Well, the update right now is the statement of claim was filed uh, as of yesterday in the Supreme Court. And uh, according to the lawyers, apparently there's a 10-day uh, kind of a, I don't know, what cool-out period, whatever the legal term is for it. And uh, they have that to reverse the decisions. And after that, then there's that, uh, it's on the court docket now. And then it'll proceed with legal proceedings after that. Wade, before we go too far down what's happening today, <laughs> let's remind folks exactly what's being challenged. We all know that your contract was canceled, but there's lots of contradictions about why. Well, uh, I guess we were blindsided, uh, stunned. I don't know what, what words you could say, Patty. Um, March back March the 2nd, about 20 minutes to 6, received a letter um, terminating our contract within 20 minutes. And our staff found out on Facebook that they were all terminated. And by the time I got to the base and tried to get everybody together, by the time I walked in, there was uh, some awful sad faces and realizing that uh, none of them had a position. And we still don't understand why. Uh, we were doing a ministerial review on a call back in June that they said that we ref refused to do, which we did do. And then another one, of course, was a virtual storm, in which employees uh, could not respond. We lost power. Basically, every everything that could have happened, Murphy's Law, happened that night. And apparently the uh, director of prior medicine felt that those staff had to respond because they were at ambulance safety or not. And that this was all uh, part of it, but the ministerial review wasn't finished. So we were waiting for Minister Osborne to complete his review on that, which we knew we were going to win. And the whole thing just got shut down. Uh, contract was terminated without a just cause. Um, no no reason for it. It's like the right hand didn't know what the left was doing. Eastern Health wanted the contract cancelled and um, that was it. And we still don't know. We still don't know to this day what rhyme or reason, what background, what information or what anything was, was done. So what are you using as a legal argument here? Is that the government's information is inaccurate? Is it an unlawful termination of a contract? What exactly is it, the challenge? It is, yeah. yeah. It, it, um, it's um, unfair termination of the uh, uh, animal service agreement because under under section six of that agreement um, there's a clause that says the minister has to give 180 days and uh, to terminate a contract and it has to be a valid reason for that because uh, the contracts normally just roll over from year to year to year because I mean we've been fighting for years to uh, get our contract within two years three years and that just keeps turning over and turning over there's another section in that contract under section five uh, where the operator can terminate the contract uh, given 180 days as well. And there's a whole uh, uh, part of that contract, sections from 54 right up to 70 and 70 on. Uh, up to 70 is, the is um, basically what's called a uh, potential noncompliance. There's specific uh, times, uh, processes there to, um, to move through that. Uh, that wasn't done. Eastern Health didn't follow that. They just sent me out a letter on June the 17th and, and with a whole list of demands taken away our service area. They, they was, and we just followed suit for, at that point in time. And that was under the um, idea that we would work through the process. And our lawyer said, well, let's work with them. And that's what we've done. 
to try to see, like, what is the information that you're using to validate the information, that the, the noncompliance? We never did receive that. So we just kept working with them and thought the whole process was working out. And, of course, all, and all of a sudden, March 2nd, uh, I guess the process wasn't no longer valid to them, but it was certainly valid to us. Give us an idea of what has become of your staff, because we had one lady on, I believe her name was Monique, and she was Correct. saying, you know, inside of five days, if this is not resolved, I'm leaving, and I believe she said she was going to Nova Scotia. Do you know what's uh, happened with your staff? Uh, I'm happy to say that, uh, well, I know I know what Minister Osborne said, but, but we, I, we, I won't comment on that. Uh, but uh, I've found positions for every one of my staff. They're all going to stay in the province. There's uh, one who is leaving. He might come back and do some uh, part-time work. And there's one clerical uh, that doesn't have a position yet, and we're trying to find something for her as well. But all of my staff, uh, actually what is happening is that they've, uh, they've all worked together with uh, our lead hand, um, Rudy, uh, Rudy Mercer, and what they're doing, they are, uh, Mr. Fuhrer is actually uh, going to move my staff out in Fuhrerland, so he is going to cover the Fuhrerland area with uh, pretty well all of my staff. So yeah. they're all going to work. They're, they've agreed to stay and wait to see what the uh, courts uh, uh, and how that moves, I guess. We're figuring it's probably going to be about a year, given up to what the court docket is like. But it's the Supreme Court, so we really don't know. And they've agreed to stay and see how this is going to work out. If the future is not there for Smith's Ambulance, then they're going to move on. And that's the last thing we can afford is to lose more paramedics. We spoke with Rodney Goody from the Paramedics Association yesterday. About enough is enough. We've been waiting for years for a better understanding of what the ambulance service is going to look like in this province. As every day drags on, private operators like you, paramedics even in the public system, are, I would imagine, carefully considering their future options. They are, Patty. You know, I've, I've been a paramedic for 30 years, and I've worked diligently, too, in the past. I mean, when I started on an ambulance years ago, there was one person on the ambulance in rural Newfoundland. Um, we bought that system up. Uh, I, I started off as an EMP in, in uh, the Albright and Wilson plant in Long Harbor. That was the Foster's plant. I, I came in. I worked uh, private. Uh, I went on the ambulance at that point. And uh, since then, like, we've built up from, to, from EMAs, which were the uh, thing back in the day, to paramedics, to paramedic level two, and uh, PCPs, ACPs. So we're advancing it. They, but it's the it's the operators that's advancing it. It's it's not government. Like it, it's us forcing the issue. Like myself and a few other operators, and we've made significant strides. Our first contract with government was back in 2003. First ever contract ever written, and we've we've made some really good points at that time. In 2010, we bought in what's called provincial medical oversight with a physician with a set of protocols and things to work with. So we've been working with those as well. So we've really done a, a lot of work. But our biggest uh, drawback, and it seems like every time you turn around, there's roadblocks, it was government. It was always the Department of Health saying, no, you don't need this, you don't need that. And we're telling them, like, all this stuff, like, it's up to you to uh, put all these things in place. Like, like, all the training programs are responsible for government. And, and we're always shorthanded because we can't catch up. We went back to government about 10 years ago, and we asked them to, let's look at what 
the system needs, like dispatchers, EMRs, paramedics, and whatever level they might be. But let's start with, P- with primary care paramedics first. Let's get those on the ambulance first. And let's look at what our retention rate would be. What is going to happen for those who are leaving the industry? What happens to those who are failing? How happens to our classes? Are we filling our classes? We asked that 10 years ago. Government never got involved, never. And we've always said, like, if you don't know what the future law is or how the system is going to work, you're going to end up with a, with a, a failed system with less staff. You're not going to have enough ambulances on the road. Our population is getting older. You're not going to be able to take care of the public. It's going to be on everybody. But the stress is going to be on the operator because we're the ones that are supposed to be responding to these calls. And government never got engaged. And now, today, we see what's happening. It's a really confusing state of affairs. We've been talking about understanding what the future of the paramedic system looks like in this province for years. My first conversation with the uh, group, whether it be Rodney Goody or others, uh, extends back, oh, I'm going to say six, seven years at least. And we still haven't implemented all of the regulations and finalized the regulations inside the Act. And that is as old as 2018, I believe, is the date for when that was uh, initially brought forward or tabled in the House of Assembly. I appreciate the time and the updates this morning, Wade. Keep us in the loop. Yeah, and we've also got a letter gone to the Premier. We, we've uh, sent that to him, asking him for, for a meeting. That's gone over, over a week, a registered mail and registered email, and we haven't heard anything back from his office as of yet. Let us know. All right, thanks, Patty. Thanks, Wade. All the best. Okay, bye-bye. That's Wade Smith of Smith's Ambulance Services. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk about record-keeping and the government, and then we'll speak with you. Don't go away. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two. Doug, you're on the air. Good morning. How are you? Not too bad, sir. How are you doing? Can you hear me okay? Not too bad. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure about the, the legislation or terminology. I think duty to report. Uh, you've been talking about today and, I guess, recently. Is there legisl- What's the legislation they're calling that? Well, or it falls under the it? Management of Information Act. Right, because, yeah, you know, governments are saying transparency and, um, you know, being held accountable. <clears throat> uh, as a former police officer, when we disclosed our file to the Crown, they would vet it to make sure no information that's sensitive or relevant uh, would go to the other party. So seems like a simple solution. Um, vet the information that can't be deemed uh going to the public, uh, but the other information can go. It's pretty straightforward. (laughs) It should be, but, you know, there's always going to be the need, the way that the parliamentary system is created, there is going to be an opportunity for cabinet secrecy to be part of the equation. I get that, because there's some things that, you know, we really should not have out in the public domain. If there's commercial sensitivities, for instance, let's just use 2041 and Hydro-Quebec negotiations as an example. If there are specifics that could uh, hamper our ability to get a good deal, whatever that means, then we probably should keep those cards close to our vest. If there's human resources issues, well, I understand why people don't want some of those to be made public. But if the government is using cabinet secrecy more and more often, and unfortunately maybe not for all the right reasons every time, for instance, if I just put down a piece of paper uh, on, the, on the cabinet table and say, well, that's now a cabinet document, that's probably not good enough. Uh, Michael Harvey himself says that the uh, government has been using the cloak of client solicitor privilege too often for his liking. So if, that was, if it was my uh, decision to make, I'd be happy enough that 
everything that needs to be uh, evaluated for public release should happen in the privacy commissioner's office with him and his staff. I mean, that's what they're there for, right? Now, there has been all kinds of requests for information that are abs absolutely never going to see the light of day. You know, I really dislike being told that so many applications were frivolous and vexatious, as was the terminology associated with uh, Bill 69. Yeah. So, you know, Michael Harvey's office, when he puts up a red flag, I think we should all pay attention. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I guess just my point is, you know, what information needs to be kept in the cabinet or kept sensitive or not out to the public, but everything else can be. Like, same with disclosure with police. Uh, and again, back to the file of, you know, there's a social insurance number, personal information that the other person or the accused don't need and shouldn't see, they don't see it. And again, that office, maybe they need more staff, but on the big decision stuff, uh, yeah duty to report and then let's look at it and what can go in the public can and what can't won't fair Not enough to on that uh, another quick point um i know the budget's coming down today uh nurses talking about all the vacancies i wonder how much money has been saved for salaries over the last couple of years with all the vacancies been an interesting number to put up yeah, I don't know how you can. I've actually <laughs> thought about that. I don't know how you arrive at a very accurate number because there's always going to be floating vacancy numbers and retirements and nurses that come and go and folks moving off to the private traveling nurse uh, set up and what have you. So I thought about trying to uh, come up with a number there. But then at the exact same time, what does some of those so-called savings mean for the trickle-down or the ripple effect with nights in hospital as opposed to a bed in a long-term care facility? People waiting for surgeries that can't get a bed because there's not just a physical bed, but the staff to accommodate their admission. So I think it comes with a lot of complicating factors. So the savings uh, get eroded pretty quickly when we factor everything in. Yeah, well, there's people out there that can do the math on that. Uh, I know it's complicated, uh, but, you know, even the guesstimates are, are a, a good estimates interesting about the part of 700 vacancies or 520 just in nurses alone Yvette coffee used uh 762 i think was the number that she used yesterday and i'm, yeah, I'm yeah. sure people could do the math but just a quick question what would we do with that number if we had that information uh well that's a number that hasn't been spent so uh oh it has been spent <laughs> yeah it hasn't Oh yeah, and then so can help improve or bring back up our healthcare system. Yeah. Anyways, that's my two points for today. Any money not spent <laughs> hasn't been saved. We can absolutely rule that out, given the fact that government continues to have to borrow. Now we'll see what today brings with surplus or exactly where we stand. But we've been borrowing, so every money, every dollar that they so-called saved, they spent somewhere else. Well. Uh... Spend it wisely. Yeah, always good piece not, of advice. Uh, governments are not uh, not very good at doing that, as we know. But uh, you have a good day. I'm off to the gym. <laughs> you, uh, you too, Doug. Thanks for the call. All right, bye. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Uh, let's roll. Let's go to line number one. Dave, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad. Thanks. How about you? Not bad at all, sir. Like many, watching the unfolding of the uh, situation with the inshore fishermen right now having to, I guess, basically stand up and speak out for themselves on an issue that seems to be a very recurrent one when it comes to handling of our Newfoundland fishery. This time, of course, being the, they were told that the biomass was about to be split 
for the first time in 35 years. Between uh, well, apparently that's not true. The official site has sent me a document uh, dated 2016. Now I've been carefully trying to read it and understand it, but this is not the first time. I think this is the first time that it's going to have an impact on individual quotas and the sharing of quota. But apparently the concept and the management of two separate biomasses has been part of their approach to the delineation of the stocks since 2016. I'm still trying to wrap my mind around it. Me too. And I think as far as, it, you know, it may have been potentially on the books to be since 2016, but probably only going into implementation stages now. And it comes as the straw that breaks the camel's back. Don't forget, inshore fishermen are getting a little bit tired of being told, well, you know, it's, it's too late now, it was done, and things are done. And finding out at the very worst of times about very big decisions that affect this fishery, affect our economy, affect all these fishermen, and, and, and effectively draws a line and kind of divides fishermen between the inshore and the offshore fleet. And there's a the potential there for issues with that as well. But look what happened last year with mackerel. At the very last minute, just before you rely upon this as a bait fish to be able to go ahead with other fisheries, as bait is very important to fish, a complete moratorium for Newfoundland fishers. Now, we're used to the word moratorium. Not that happy with it, but we're used to it. The moratorium was only honored in Newfoundland. The United States kept fishing. They were in and out of the 200-mile limit grabbing whatever they wanted. That still goes on. There was no quota cutback or moratorium in the U.S., and this is a migratory fish that you got to crack at them while they're here, and then they're going on. Yeah, it's long been referred to as a shared stock, and, of course, because it is. But, you know, that said, there's nothing we can do here about American policy decisions. It's just that it doesn't make much sense. If we're going to talk about something as a shared stock, and then the two countries do something diametrically opposed to each other, Correct. then it really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It makes no sense. As a matter of fact... The ones that it makes sense to now, and the reason that these lads, God love them, are out there trying to make some recognition to this issue, is it's been a repetitive process, not just for the inshore fleet, for everybody that's involved with the Newfoundland fishery. Because basically, their survival's at stake now. If they look at losing portion of their of their resource, of their quotas, or whatever the case may be, because in a severe lack of science, it seems that most of these things that come down are opinions, because they're not based on science. If they've been skipping the, the different uh, things that we should have been doing that tells us basically uh, what the biomass is, now we've got a fictitious line that separates the inshore and the offshore biomass. Well, as far as I know, crab come and go, and I say they cross that line. We're not even really sure where that line is to. But one of the foolish things that comes about in lieu of science are like this precautionary approach framework. That's somebody's opinion. Sitting in a room somewhere else and saying, this is what we're going to do now. We're going to be very precautionary here now on what we do. A lot of these crab fishermen, the inshore fishermen that are out there, got small quotas. Somebody has run the boat with a 3 million pound quota. I can assure you the bulk of their economic benefit to this province is minimized. It's corporate money. Inshore fishermen 
spend their dollar locally. Every restaurant, every car dealership, everywhere that they sell hockey equipment because the kids can go to minor hockey and everything. Everything in our economy is so tightly linked, but yet so little credit given to the prosecution of this fishery in terms of the dollar value by the pound that it yields to the fishermen, the jobs that come from it, it all is a very big contributing, uh, uh, a big contributor to our local economy. We can't do without it. Now, we're being told this is a federal issue. Well, I think it's even more than a federal issue. When you see that our, our crab prices are threatened now because Russia, who declared a war on somebody else and you know, involved in a brutal war. They're dumping crab into the market, and apparently there's crab in excess in in processors, freezers, and whatever the case may be. It makes absolute zero sense that somebody who started a war is involved in a war is booming in the crab business, but here we are, largest crab fishery in the world, and we're told that we can't sell it because of this Russian crab. Well, maybe there should be some sanctions put on it, and probably uh, nobody should be bringing in this Russian crab. I don't know what that answer is. Yeah, but that, I think that one becomes a little bit more complicated because if it's that's a G seven thing. Well, yeah, and plus we don't get to say that uh, Japan can't buy whatever from whoever. I just don't sanctions don't even really no. quite work like that. But you know, and I've been told that it's there's more to the market story than simply Russian crab in Japan. I'm sure it's part of it. You know, if we've been selling X to Japan uh, in years past, but now we're selling half that, then of course there's an impact on the market. Huge. And exactly how much snow crab remains in cold storage is a floating target. It's, people are using 30% of the last year's catch remains unsold, which I think, and I know fish harvesters don't want to hear this, but I'm not sure about the logic of taking anything out of the water that we can't sell. You know, because market will obviously dictate the price. Market will also dictate how much gets sold. So if we couldn't sell the entire total allowable catch last year, then maybe we should factor that into how we approach this year's season. It's easy enough for me to say. I'm not a crab fisherman. But I don't well, know about the logic of protecting a stock by taking out more than you can sell. But anyway. True. I, you know, there is some truth to be said to that. Like, I'd like to have it proven that they have these huge stockpiles of crab everywhere. It seems like most crab processors are getting ready now to buy crab, uh, even though their freezer is supposed to be full. they got the loads of pallets and everything in their front yards, and they're, they're gearing up. You can see that they're actively heading towards opening day. And uh, now this comes down to basically survival for inshore fishermen, because if your price gets shot, your quotas drop. There's your ability to be able to mainstay yourself. That's why I'm saying that this is an issue that far exceeds. It's bigger and should be supported by more than these hundred or so inshore fishermen that are out trying the only way that they can in this province. You know, basically what they're doing, as far as I'm concerned, what they're doing is no more wrong than when you hear tell a government going at each other, filibustering the house or whatever. There's nothing gets done. It's all interruption to prove a point. Yeah, it depends how much uh, quota you have, I suppose, as to how dire this may be. But I do see them putting crab pots up flagpoles with the flag. Not so sure I'm a big fan of that. But, again, <laughs> they'll do whatever they see fit. Yeah. Uh, appreciate the time, Dave. Off I go. All right. Take Provincial care. Minister of Fisheries and everybody else, and the union people uh, in particular, uh, Greg Pretty, get on the line with these fellows. Get our message heard. Make sure that Ottawa doesn't give us between the 12th version and the final okay. draft a change that nobody expected. That's an, that's why it's getting harder to take. They say we keep getting blindsided. Why? Appreciate that should your time. tell you something right there. Thanks, Dave. 
Thanks, buddy. All the best. Bye-bye. Take care. All right, let's get that break in. Don't go away. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Uh, let's go. Line number four. Lindy, you're on the air. Morning, Patty. Morning to you. I just wanted to put out a, a congratulations to our granddaughter, Cassidy Stratton. Okay. And her acceptance into law school in uh, Saskatchewan. Going to the University of Saskatchewan or? Uh, yes. Okay, good for her. Yes, sir. So I'm proud. I, I, so you should be. You know, when there's some pretty lofty uh, work that needs to be done in post-secondary, when you get to one of these graduate areas like law school, med school, you know, you're going for your master's in engineering and stuff, I'm sure you're proud as a grandfather. Why wouldn't you be? Yeah, as proud as a peacock. So when does she go? Leaving for next September? Uh, not sure yet. She's waiting for acceptance to uh, to two more uh, uh, law schools. Uh, waiting for answers from them first. Yeah, because I mean, you Before always have she really to really decide. You know. Yeah, spread your options around. Does she have a school that she really wants to go to? Uh, one in Nova Scotia. So probably Dalhousie. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I think that's that's her. That rather than be that far away from from Newfoundland, from home, eh? Yeah, one of my sisters uh, has a law degree from Dal. Very good. Yeah, and another sister has a law degree from Western. Uh, not too bad. Not too bad at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're smart cookies, those two. I see. I see. Yeah, so congratulations to her, and hopefully she gets accepted to the other two schools as well so she can pick and choose exactly where she'd like to study, maybe even closer to home, which is good for her, good for everybody. But congratulations to her. Pass it along for me, Lindy. I will do that, sir. Good man. Thank you. Uh, my pleasure. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye-bye. I think there's a conversation to be had, too, about do we really need a law school at Mon? I know the university is really quite bullish on it. But there are other disciplines where we might need to expand the number of seats. Now, I know the budget at the med school is separate from the Memorial University budget in and of itself. But a law school? Really? Anyway, let's go. Line number two. Rodney, you're on the air. I just wanted to put out a, a congratulations. Rodney, hello. You're on the air. Oh, I'm sorry, sir. No problem at all. Turn down the radio so it doesn't shag us up and off we go. Yeah, all right. I'll go up over here, sir. One second, I'm gone. No problem. Yep. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> just wanted to bring up concerning the fishery this year. I'm an inshore harvester. If uh, if what the federal government decides to do with us is going to shaft a lot of us over Newfoundland this year, especially in the tree hill uh, sector, you know. Exactly what fishermen. is the impact, Rodney? Like, uh, give us some dollars and cents uh, <laughs> issues or percentage of quota loss. Exactly what's going to happen or what do you think is going to happen? Well, uh, what I think is going to happen is that... Um, Last year, uh, we started off with uh, uh, 6,200-pound. So we went in and we sat down in, in, into the wrap session and, and looked for an increase. So our, you know, our crab stocks were in good shape, and, 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 and we got an increase of 2,000-pound. But adjacent to us, which is an imaginary line outside 25 miles, the other fleet got an increase of 30,000. And, and I mean, with me last year, I had 8,200 pounds of crab to catch. My boat turned over $73,000. Now, how can I run my boat with $73,000 and three other men? No way possible. 
Yeah, and that's where, you know, and we all know the truth here, there's no one-size-fits-all because different zones may indeed have different strength of stock and the amount of spawning biomass, depending on the species we're talking about, and not every quota is the same across the board if you have a 3911 versus a 65-footer, you know, so there's lots of different moving parts. But I would imagine it's under 40 fleet that will take the biggest knock for overall revenues in crab this year if it plays out the way you think it is. Well, if, if, it, if it don't change right now, if you know you're hearing you're hearing and uh, you know I'm just saying I'm watching saying you know crab is going to be three dollars a pound, so so I got twenty four thousand dollars worth of crab. I just received a bill in the mail yesterday for three thousand dollars for insurance. Then I need a thousand dollars for fuel, a thousand dollars for me license, and then a th- and then bait right now I'm hearing is two dollars and fifty cents a pound for squid. So that's $5,000, $6,000 gone off me profit already. Now, how can I turn around and ask another two fishermen to go fish me on that? There's no way possible. There's just no way possible. And, and, and you know, it's, 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 it's wrong what they're doing. I mean, I, I've, I'm on the committee with the guys, and I've sat down, and, and you know, Years ago, when we had Lynn Knight there, I mean, we sat down with Lynn Knight, and and before we before we left, we knew, you know, we're going to get somewhere around this what we asked for. But but these guys now, <laughs> they know what they're doing. But I mean, they're just wasting our time of going in and sitting down on a committee with them because we're not getting nowhere with them. I mean, there was stuff sent to Ottawa the other day, and 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 the wording wasn't even correct. And, and he wonders why that everybody's going around getting so mad. My God, I mean, 8,200 pounds, how can you live off that? And like I just told you, the next fella next year, which is an imaginary line, just got a 30,000-pound increase. I mean, I fished the cod here in Conception Bay last year. I had a 75-footer that just turned over $7.5 million in crab, and he's out there trying to catch the same bit of fish that I am, and i got to live off it. There's greed. That's all that's wrong with the fishery is greed. They're not worried about the inshore fishermen no more. We're going to be bumped out. If they don't change this, we're going to be bumped out. Because if it wasn't for shellfish, the fishery would have been upside down by now anyway. Because when ground fish collapsed, many of the species did. If it wasn't for shrimp and crab and lobster, we wouldn't even have much of a viable inshore fishery period. But if it's going to continue to be eroded uh, like it seems to be at this point, then I think the questions are fair. And uh, let me ask this last one. So I know that Greg Purdy, the new president of the FAW, met with Seamus O'Regan. O'Regan tweeted last night that he understands concerns and will bring it directly to Federal Minister Joyce Murray. Do you have any faith in whether it be the union or any elected officials that understand the issue, number one? Because that's where sometimes we get ourselves into a, a bind here, is that I'm not so sure many of the politicians really understand the industry. So consequently, it's hard to fight the good fight when you're not entirely sure what you're talking about. But do you have any faith in them being able to do anything as an elected representative of you and everyone else in the province? No, just uh, I, I got no faith in, in, in the Liberals this year. Honest to God, I haven't. I just haven't. I Listen, if, if, if they thought anything about rural Newfoundland, they'd be up in arms right now in, in into the Confederation building. But they're not. Minister Braggs, uh, like, you know, the way he gets on, no way. He's not there to help us. I tell you, all they're there to help, they're helping all the bigger fellers. They're not worried about the inshore fishermen. They're not worried about the inshore fishermen. They're trying to shaft us out. They're starving us. I mean, I'm home here this year now getting $231 a week on unemployment because that's all I had to catch. Now, either pack it in and go away. <laughs> well, who's going to take me at 55 years old right now? 
Another interesting question when you talk about the average age of the fish harvester and, f and farmers and other traditional industries, it's becoming tougher and tougher for people to want to get into the industry, let alone the ability to get in. Uh, I appreciate your time this morning, Rodney. I've got to get to the news, but you're always welcome. All right, sir. Thank you very much. Take good care. Bye-bye. All right. Yeah, bye. All right. Uh, let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, the rest of the show is entirely up to you. The topic, also up to you. Don't go away. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the executive officer of the Canadian Home Builders Association. That's Alexis Foster. Good morning, Alexis. You're on the air. Hi. How are you doing this morning? I'm very well. Thanks for asking. How about you? Very good. Very busy. Very excited here this morning. We're getting our home show on to go for the first time in three years. <laughs> yeah, there's been a lag in these types of uh, personal get-togethers, expos, or otherwise. So tell us what's coming up, and then I want to have a conversation about the industry uh, at large. Yes, for sure. Um, so we've got an exciting two days coming up, Saturday and Sunday, here at the Glacier in Mount Pearl. Uh, doors are opening from 9 to 6 on Saturday and 9 to 4 on Sunday. Uh, we have over 55 exhibitors, and they're going to cover everything about the home. Um, so we, we're very, very excited to, to get people out here to see what's available. Um, we definitely want to thank the sponsors that we have. We've got Take Charge, Newfoundland Power, Mark's Commercial, and of course, VOCM for being our media sponsor. So we definitely appreciate you guys as well. Happy to do it. What are some of the new innovations in the world of home building? Because things have changed dramatically, not only in the materials, but the approach and the innovation, the technology for even designing and building a home. What are some new trends that people should be aware of? Oh, yeah. Well, there's there's quite a few. So one other thing that we actually are having at the show this weekend is uh, Universal Design and Adaptive Home Pavilion. So that um, center, that pavilion, will actually focus on providing uh, knowledge on how to make your space and your home uh, usable for all people, no matter your ability, your age, or your situation. It's more about inclusive living. Um, there's new building codes coming into effect as well. Um, so there's going to be information around those things. All of our builders uh, will be up to date as those codes come in as well. Um, so that's some of the, the newer innovative things that are coming in. And of course, the Greener Homes uh, initiatives. Um, there is a Greener Homes grant right now. So you hear more about mini splits, heat pumps, those type of things. So that's definitely some of the big things that are coming through right now. Inside of Universal Design, we talk about it in public buildings because if you have that design up front, it saves you money down the road because you won't have to do the redesigns or the retro refits or what have you. But inside your own home, what are we talking about? Accessible access and egress and the size of hallways and bathroom design. What exactly is included in someone's personal home regarding Universal Design if they don't have that need today? Yeah, yeah. If, if you don't have that need, that's okay too. It might be things like yeah, widening uh, hallways or uh, um, making cabinets more accessible um, and more at a, at a easier to access level. Um, it could be many different things. So they can just speak to you about your needs. We actually do have a great group in that pavilion. We will have representation from the Universal Design Network for Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, the Newfoundland and Labrador Association of Occupational Therapists the Autism Society for Newfoundland and Labrador, as well as the Coalition uh, of Persons with Disabilities for Newfoundland and Labrador. So there will be lots of people there um, with quite a wide berth of knowledge to help you uh, as you navigate if you are deciding to implement uh, adaptive home design into your new home or to your retrofit. 
Let's talk about some of the uh, activity of the past. We'll use five-year segments, maybe 17 to 22, and then we'll look for an industry outlook. There was a bit of a contraction, if I remember correctly, in 18 and 19 uh, in certain provinces. And, of course, every province is created different and depends on what spikes housing starts, whether it be, like in this province, oil production or new oil fields coming on stream, which has a direct impact on the price of a home and for housing starts. But... Where does the industry look down the road in the next five years? We have a housing issue in the in the country, affordable housing and otherwise. So what are we expecting? A decline, an increase in housing starts? Because that's been one of the key economic measures. Yeah, for sure. No, we're, we're optimistic. We are hopeful to see some more new housing starts as we go forward. Um, uh, the industry is still struggling with the fluctuation in price. Uh, and especially the increase in prices um, that is really impacting everyone. Uh, right now, they're also dealing with uh, issues around finding those skilled trades. Um, and, and that is something that we are continuing to see. And uh, we do actually, this weekend as well, we will have uh, hiring uh, signs around. There will be a few of our exhibitors that are looking to hire as well. So if you are looking to fill some of those uh, those roles, please be sure to come in and visit us as well. But that is definitely some of the bigger things that we see in the next little while. Um, we do know people have spent a lot of time in their homes in the last three years. Uh, so you really know what projects need to be done. Uh, maybe you not need to build on a piece. Maybe you need to buy a new piece. Maybe you just want to retrofit uh, a room or something in your home. So uh, we are definitely seeing people are knowing now better than ever what needs to be done and, and what needs to be done to better suit their needs. So um, we're optimistic that the, the future will continue to grow. Our members will be busy and um, yeah, we'll see lots of new home starts, but we are realistic as well. We do realize that we don't have the ability to control those prices and the, the fluctuation in interest rates and all those things, but we're we're optimistic. We'll see what the budget says today. <laughs> yeah, contractors really did very well throughout most of the pandemic here because there was provincial rebates available. Consequently, you couldn't find a contractor. Now, they weren't building new homes necessarily, but lots of renovation work went on uh, in this province, certainly, and I'm sure that's very similar around the country. You mentioned the shortage of workers. You know, even if all of the affordable housing plans were acted upon immediately and other developers that are out there with a business model in their back pocket was acted on immediately, we couldn't do it. We simply could not do it. We don't have the tradespeople available. Inside the federal government's target of 1.5 million immigrants over the course of three years, it's, there is a lot of skilled trades focused trying to recruit people to come to the country. Uh, does that suit your industry? But how about homegrown and the amount of uh, tradespeople that are out there that could potentially be part of the industry, but for some reason or another, not taking it on. Yeah, well, we are. We're, we're working on many different initiatives now ourselves to try to make sure that we do reach some of those homegrown uh, contractors and skilled trades. Uh, people, so we are optimistic that we will see uh, a few more people come into the industry in the coming years. Give us the where, the when, one more time for the expo, and maybe any associated costs to attend. Okay, yeah, for sure. So the Home Show 2023 is our uh, 37th Home Show. It's happening this Saturday and Sunday at the Glacier in Mount Pearl. Um, it is happening on Saturday from 9 to 6, uh, Sunday from 9 to 4. You do have the opportunity to win a grand prize of a 12,000 BTU Daikin Mini Split from Cold Air Contracting. Uh, and we also have a secondary prize for a permanent holiday lighting installation so from Spectrum Lighting. So that one's pretty exciting as well. Uh, it's $8 to get in. Um, it's a dollar off for seniors and under 12 
gets in for free as long as they are accompanied by an adult. And we, uh, yeah, we hope to see you all out and, and supporting the, the industry as well and, and come out and, and ask questions if you're looking to do a home renovation or new build. I know you're not representing Spectrum, but what is that permanent holiday lighting? What does that mean? I hear the commercials oh. and I'm always curious. Yes, no, that's the stuff that goes along your eaves, and you can change the colors based on uh, the different holidays. So if you want it to be, yeah, orange and black, you can for Halloween or, yeah. Very good. Appreciate the time, Alexis. Good luck. Not a problem. You have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you. Alexis Foster is the Executive Officer of the Canadian Home Builders Association. All right, uh, Larry's here in the queue to talk about roads and pavements, and, of course, a massive announcement yesterday, some $1.4 billion to be spent over the course of five years for road work. We'll hear what Larry has to say right after this. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Larry, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? I'm okay, Larry. How are you doing? Not bad. Thank you for taking my call. Pleasure. I, uh, I, I wanted to make a few comments on the uh, the highways and uh, byways. Uh, we uh, went to Gander yesterday for some doctor appointments, and and we drove over some pavement there going uh, from Gander Bay to Gander that's only three years old. And it, it, it's, it's unbelievable what's happening to it already. I mean, uh, it, it's hard to understand tell you the truth in, in a world that we're living in that they can't come up with something and to uh seal the pavement where it joins in the middle because from what i seen yesterday and uh you know size it up uh, that seems to be where a lot of the problem is still because i noticed a crack where the two lots of pavement joins pretty much everywhere and uh and in a lot of places those cracks were filled with water or ice so, yeah, when water and ice forms in under something, I mean, we all know what happens to that. And it cracks it up, breaks it up, and, uh, and, and it just gets worse from that. And I can't understand why, uh, you know, I mean, they're going to spend all of this money now on, on, on uh, that kind of work. I mean, I don't know. I just, I don't, I can't see it. I can't understand it. Well, me too. So, you know, we've had conversations with the uh, civil uh, crew, the road builders. I've actually had the minister, a couple of different transportation ministers on talking about this because it's fine to tell me that we're going to spend X amount of money on roads. It's fine for the uh, government to applaud themselves for getting more kilometers paved for less money. But if the road doesn't last, and I'm not so sure we're applauding ourselves for, maybe we're applauding ourselves for poor, poor decisions. So people are quite clear in their thoughts on how, uh, how long pavement could last, whether it be the bed, uh, the bed work and the preparation work and the thickness of the asphalt and the chemical composition of the asphalt itself. But we don't seem to get the length of time out of the roads that they get elsewhere. And I'm kind of tired of people telling me that it's only about freeze and thaw because this is a northern country. There's freeze and thaw in most every part of the country. Sure it is. I mean, I mean, I, I certainly surely don't have to do all this kind of work on highways like the 401 and stuff. I mean, uh, I mean, it's it's so old, uh, there wouldn't be no traffic because on a highway like that, there would be blacked all the time with construction. So, I mean, there must be something that's not being done right. I mean, uh, and I can't understand why. Uh, I don't think it takes uh, would take a rocket scientist to figure it out either. I mean, uh, you know, to me, uh, it's it's like uh, waking me a rare before you're done. 
Well, I mean, people use the same example all the time, and I think it's an accurate one, is if you look at the state of the highway on either side of the Terranova National Park, it does speak volumes as to the different approach that the feds take and the funding they put in and the type of uh, RFPs they put out, the tenders they put out, because government dictates what this all looks like, whether it be about how the bed is prepared and the thickness of the asphalt and the chemical composition, that all comes as part of the tender package. So we don't seem to be, you know, following along with other jurisdictions that are doing it better. We actually had an academic expert in asphalt on the show. His name is Dr. Kamal Hussein from Memorial University. This is what he does. And he's been telling us for years that we just have an antiquated approach. Well, my suggestion would be, why don't we update, modernize, and figure out how they're doing it better elsewhere? Yeah. I mean, you know. Anyway, Patty, if, if it's okay, I'd like to uh, jump to something else. Sure, go ahead. Um, I, I, I got concerned about this uh, 811 health line uh, in regards of uh, our in the nurse practitioners. Uh, I heard uh, someone under talking the other day, and they were... Uh, saying that a lot of them are working uh, double jobs, right? They're, they're working a day job, and then they're going to work with 811 Elfline. So I had an understanding that through some of this ordeal, a lot of the issues were uh, around overworking and stress and whatever. So I find it a bit contradictory that uh, if I'm working a job all day and uh, it's just as well for me to put in 16 hours in one place and then to, to, to go and jump somewhere else and do eight and eight. I think the hospital setting might be a little bit more demanding than answering the phone at 811. But I actually, someone made mention of that yesterday after we talked with the vet coffee is if they're taking on additional work, whether it be with blood collection or working at 811 or whatever they're doing, and then a nurse very quickly responded uh, through my email address and said, you know why I'm taking on extra work? Because I need to pay the bills. <laughs> and I thought, okay, <laughs> that makes sense to me. Because all kinds of people are taking on side hustles these days to keep up with the cost of living and inflation and the amount of debt they're carrying. So I suppose that's probably the justification for some of them. Yes, that's, you know, without a doubt. No argument there. Yeah, I got buddies who have pretty good jobs in this world, and they're taking on additional work just because of the aforementioned. They are having a hard time, whether it be the increase in interest rates, which is a big problem for some of them because they were living a little bit above their means, and now that's coming home to roost. So I suppose that's why people are working more, because they have no choice. Yeah, without a doubt. I appreciate the time. uh, Okay, Patty, I'd just like to... um close off by making mention of the fact that we're here on uh, Chain Donalds and we have no uh, no nurse, we've got no doctor, we haven't seen a doctor in months and months and well we haven't seen a nurse in months either uh, our past nurse now has, uh, just left the position on her own and we're left empty again so uh, you know uh, there's a lot of a lot of grumbling and complaining in there because I got health issues myself and I, uh, I, uh, I'm I in there a fair bit and uh, you know like things that I, I'm observing is uh, a lot of people don't realize that uh, you know I, know I know I'm living on this island uh, through my own will and everything else but uh, when you're living there you know somewhere where you've got no doctor and no nurse you got no health care and 75% of your population are seniors just about everybody here I know got something wrong like everywhere. So, you know, I think uh, maybe it uh, should look at the healthcare system a little different sometimes. Thank you. I appreciate the time, Larry. Thanks a lot.
Good day. Take care. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm. Now, as part of the recent announcements, uh, you know, pre-budget announcements, they do make clear mention of uh, bonuses that would be paid out to healthcare professionals to work in more remote parts of the province. And it's a sliding scale based on how remote and how difficult it has been to get someone, a nurse or a doctor, to move to, for instance, in Larry's case, to change islands. Anyhow, let's keep going. Line number one, John, you're on the air. Yes, good morning. Um, I'm calling. Uh, I have, uh, I'm turning 75. I'm a senior, and I had to get a medical report uh, done by a doctor, and uh, I'm having problems. I, I, I lost my doctor last fall there. I, I don't have a family doctor. I'm, call, I'm calling around to uh, walk-in clinics, but a lot of them don't do that, you know, and the ones that are are charging awful fees like ninety dollars a hundred dollars like i was wondering if somebody could help me someplace i could go to get this this uh, form uh, completed like uh, so just so i understand what we're talking about john is this uh, a report you need filled out for your driver's license or something y- yes that's okay. correct all right well, I wish I could say, well, call Dr. X, Y, or Z, uh, and they'll take you on, but I don't know where to point you directly. So you you lost your family doctor. Have you? Are you on the list to try to get a new one, whether it be one of these new clinics or otherwise? Yes, I am. I'm on that uh, provincial list or whatever, you know, like when you, when you apply online there. Yeah, Patient Connect NL, yep. Yeah, yeah, I'm on there since I lost my doctor, and... Well, I'm, I'm after calling everywhere looking for a doctor, and well, I just gave up because some some places they don't even answer their phone. They got a message saying if you're calling looking for a family doctor, you know, just it's we're not taking any. So I just gave up looking for a doctor. Well, what we can do is uh, there are certainly people who are working in clinics and or doctors themselves. If someone has the opportunity to help John out to uh, fill out this medical report so he can get his driver's license renewed at the age of 75, they contact us. We will uh, uh, we'll give you a shout and give you uh, some contact information for them. How's that? Yeah, that's great. But what about the fees they're charging? Like yesterday, this uh, uh practical nurse she wanted ninety dollars and i called uh, another uh, walk-in clinic they wanted a hundred dollars and cash only like uh i think they're taking advantage of seniors like i don't mind paying a fee but god that's that's a terrible fee to have to pay just to get your you know license Renewed. I didn't know it was as expensive as that. Uh, I'm sure there's always going to be some sort of fee for this type of work to be done. But what I can do, as I just mentioned, if someone gives me an idea where they can help you sooner than later and the associated fee, whatever info I get, I'll pass along to you as soon as I get it, John. Okay. I certainly appreciate that. My pleasure. Good luck. Thank you very, thank you very much. You're Bye-bye. welcome. Bye-bye. Yeah, will I take uh, Dennis here because we're coming back for the minister? Uh, no, let's take a break on time. We are expecting a call from uh, Minister Sarah Studley. And, of course, she's in the news today because we're hearing from Michael Harvey about things like duty to document. So she's the minister responsible for the office of the chief information officer, who is Michael Harvey. So the minister wants to come on to talk about some of the issues in the news about Michael Harvey's role on a variety of fronts. And if you want to propose something we should also broach with the minister, you can do exactly that during this break. But when we come back, Dennis is there to talk the fishery. Don't go away. 
This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two. Dennis, you're on the air. Good morning, Paddy. How are you this morning? Not too bad, you? Oh, not bad, sir. Good. Beautiful day out there. Uh, not too bad in town. Actually brightening up a little bit. Yeah, sunny here by in the park. Nice. What park? <laughs> Terranova. Oh, okay, you're in Terranova. Excellent. What's on your yeah. mind, Dennis? Uh, just want to speak with regards of uh, 3L insured or uh, Paddy. I'm Arvester in 3L. Uh, crab management area five A. Uh, I've been gone away for four or five days now, and I—I'll be right frank and honest. I haven't uh, really heard or seen a whole lot of what's going on, but uh, only being blankly filled in, I'll call it. But anyway, uh, I'm not uh, a whole lot sure what it is is being protest or whatever, but. You know, just to speak on, uh, on uh, a precautionary approach, bringing uh, 3L inshore together, Patty, like uh, I'm sure you're familiar with what's going on, but there was nine CMAs, and now it's all one AD area, they're calling it, right? Yeah, um, so I guess CMA means crab management area, does it? That's correct, okay. yeah. But anyway, I guess to get down to the nuts and the bolts of it, you know, like a 5A right on up to Placentia Bay, I guess it comes down to what have in Bonavista Bay got to do with what's up in Placentia Bay. And I've been an advocate at this and pushing this and others have, and it seems like there's nobody listening, right? And, you know, it's more relevant to me if I'm bordering a line fishing with 3K or I'm bordering a line fishing with... The mid uh, the uh, supplementary fleet on the eastern side or whatever like that's more relevant to me what's going on and uh, you know uh, there's all there's all different uh, things with this uh, like I heard I think it was you I won't quote what you said or uh, probably the caller said it uh, there you were talking but you know made comments with regards of uh, Quota increases versus. Uh, what comments are you uh, talking about? Pardon? What comments are you referring to? Well, this is what I'm getting into. Quota increases versus there's stuff sitting in cold storage. How can you have quota increases? Basically, that's that's the gesture I got from it, right? But I guess my point being with that, we cannot have, uh, uh, you know, basin. Uh, uh, quota up on on, uh, on whether you can sell or not, right? It's two different issues, Patty. That's what I'm getting at, right? Well, is it two different issues, though? Because for me, and I mean, I'm not a harvester, so I admit all these things freely, is I'm not so sure in the the merit in taking something out of the water for the sake of catching to satisfy a quota if it's not getting sold. Because we've long worried about the status of the stock. It was only about five years ago, snow crab was in a bit of trouble. This year, we're told there's somewhere around 200,000 tons of biomass out there for a cod, and that's the entirety of it. So does it make sense to you to catch something for the sake of if it can't be sold? Well, see, Patty, that's the, that's the big question, I suppose, if it can't be sold. I guess if it can't be sold, it'll come down to buyers won't, won't buy the, the product, right? And, uh, you know, or harvesters won't fish if it comes down to price, like, it comes down to the price. Like, at the end of the day, or, uh, <laughs> it can't be set up on, uh, and I'll just, i.e., uh, 
say that companies comes in and says don't no quotas increases because uh we cannot sell like this is not right because it's all different areas and we all uh have at some point in time have took downfalls and took upturns and you know our we're being hauled back here now with Trial inshore being all lumped together and uh took when you said there earlier uh low low uh years or whatever and we took the cuts now we can't get back up because we're lumped all together uh, and averaged out and you know just to speak with regards to pa framework like this is uh people modeling and when I say modeling, they're using metrics, right? And, you know, you can speak crab, we can speak cape, and we can speak what you like. Uh, when you're using these metrics and, you know, it's very, it's, 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 you can't even really put a percentage to it because, you know, and I'll use crab. An egg clutch is one metric, a, C, a catch P unit effort is another metric, and then the discards is another metric. So just think about that now. Uh, so how can you uh, determine the discards, for instance? You know, there's only been like half a dozen uh, observed trips probably in the whole area, three L inshore, right? So, you know, I guess <laughs> it's very frustrating as a harvester, like to sit and, and watch somebody put something on a graph that is really non, I won't say irrelevant, but it's not uh, factual and accurate. It's only an indicator, and you cannot base quotas up on, on just so little information, right? Well, uh, no one argues that. You know, you need all the information required, whether it be the up-to-date science and the anecdotal evidence and the catch rates and everything else. But there's already species out there where if we can't sell them, we're not taking them. Look no further than seals. We haven't h taken the seal quota for years because no one can sell it. You can't make a buck at it. Yeah, well, Patty, I, I, I honestly don't think we're in that, that big estate that the crab is not going to be sold. Oh, no, I don't think so yeah. either. There's a market for it, but whether it be Russian crab in Japan, whether it be, you know, the fact that it is a luxury item, it's a white tablecloth market in the United States that didn't seem to buy as much last year as they did in years past too. So, look, again, it's easy enough for me to say it's not my livelihood, right? But I just put it out there as to how we factor in. If we're using all the info, all the science, all the catch rates, all the anecdotal evidence, all of that stuff, do we not factor in market, not only for setting the price per pound, but how much we could reasonably take and reasonably uh, consider or forecast selling. That's all. Yeah, well, I guess, Patty, we'll have to agree to disagree on that. No problem. At the, at the end of the day, quotas got to be set, and, you know, uh, whether they're left in the water or whatever, that's, that's a different issue. But, uh, you know, a small, bold harvester, and this is what it comes down to, a small, bold harvester, um, he he or she should not be hold back on getting a quota increase because uh someone say that it may not be sold right 
Look, and I, I mean, we're not necessarily agreeing to disagree or anything like that. For me, from where I sit, this is simply a conversation about some of the different moving parts. It's not a disagreement because you're the fish harvester. You might know, not you might know, you definitely know more about the industry than I do. I'm just looking at what we've seen historically. And if we're catching things that aren't moving in the market and we're consistently year over year worried about strength of stock to ensure it's healthy enough so that quotas don't get slashed, um, that's all I was throwing it out. It's only for the purpose of conversation. So I appreciate your perspective and your points, and you're welcome to say anything else before we finish up and say goodbye. Yeah, no, and and I certainly agree that and appreciate that, Patty. But, you know, like uh, when Triel Inshore, and when I say there's nine CMAs in Triel Inshore, like when they put forward the request for an increase, you know, you you got to think how small a percentage of increase this really is, right? Like, you know... I believe last year, don't quote me, but like we, we took like 90 tons in our CMA or something of an increase. So it's really, there's really on irrelevant, you know, when it comes to the overall tech, right? And uh, it can mean something very big for uh, a small boat harvester, whether it comes to paying a crew or for getting EI purposes or whatever. So. You know, I, uh, I I just get so frustrated, and the way everything is moving with regards of science and put modeling and and you know just it's 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 so uh, how do I put it? It's so miscued. Like it can look like a number and be a, a, a total different percentage altogether. And we've heard this in meetings. I won't quote people's uh, people on stuff or whatnot but it's 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 totally crazy it'll blow your mind like and you know here we are and i'll just i'll just speak to capeman here we are today we do not have no science whatsoever we got a acoustic survey that goes around in the spring of the year if it gets done because of ice conditions it got done it, this year didn't it it got done yeah but with that being said, it do not measure biomass or nothing. It's only to determine uh, uh, different things on condition or whatever with fish. Uh, you know, then we got a larvae sample that uh, is done on a beach, right? And that's a, that's a metric. So here, harvesters been saying for 20 or 25 years, probably longer, that, uh, you know, there's no more beach spawning. There's demersal spawning off in deep water, right? We do not know the results from that. Uh, you know, we continuously say this into meetings. Now they're starting to come back and say, oh, yeah, well, we got some demersal evidence now that's done, you know, and then you try to say, okay, uh, where was it done? Was it off from the beach? That That... You had your larvae sample? Well, yes, it was so many meters off. So, you know, the likelihood of that, Patty, is only the same results, right? At the end of the day, we got global warming. we got things going on with our water today that people do not understand. And the fish is going out in the deeper water for the right temperature or for the right condition or whatever, and it's spawning. And, you know, somebody got to realize this. we got to recognize this. And it's, 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 it's crazy. Right, it's you sit into those meetings and it's all about oh, oh, it's about um, uh, uh, 
uh, ecosystem approach. You know, it's yeah. all about one thing drives into the other, and it all blah blah blah. I don't know, Patty. It just it just blows my mind. Listen, we all know that one thing drives into another, but sure. we got to properly manage it all, and that's what it comes down to. And it's we've done stuff for this last decades whether it comes to crab or it comes for capelin yes there's ups and lows there's there's always been that but guess what it's been sustainable and people got to get that through their tickets right we're not in the shape that we cannot be harvesting at a sensible level and okay. I'll fi- I'm going to finish up by saying one thing and, I, and I'm going to speak with my own CMA area in 5A okay go ahead quickly though our area there, Patty, we've, and I'll go right around uh, this whole area, harvesters, as says, have told us that we got to take a level of about 1,200 tons out. If we go take out any more than that, we're going to take too much. And we've had, uh, you know, probably eight or ten years, we went up to fifteen or 1,600 tons, and it was too much. So, you know, uh, we... We went down to the low, and that was 600 tons, and getting percentage increases on 600 tons takes a long time to get back up, and this is the problem. This is the problem. We cannot get reached back to the level which we should be harvesting at. Fair enough, Dennis, and I'll leave with, with, with this because I have to go. We also have to factor in how much crab is bought from out-of-province harvesters as we, you know, it's fine and dandy tell me how much sat in cold storage, but how much of that was actually uh, landed by somewhere with Magdalene Islands or New, uh, New Brunswick or Quebec or wherever. So that's part of it as well. Uh, good to have see, you on, Dennis. See, Patty, Dennis? That's, that's a great thing, too, what you just raised, right? So why should bringing in crab from out of the province affect uh, tree L inshore small boat fishermen? No, it shouldn't. Right? Uh, that's exactly. not what I said. It's, uh, you know, how much that factored into how much crab is sitting in cold storage. That's the point, you know. And it shouldn't impact quota, and it shouldn't impact price. I just think that that further complicated the problem for our harvesters and selling their catch. Yes, exactly. Appreciate and the time, Dennis. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, Minister Cyrus Tudley's in the queue. Don't go away. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the Liberal member elected in and serving the folks of Mount Sio. She's the Minister of Digital Government and Service NL, and notably for this conversation, Minister responsible for the Office of the Chief Information Officer. That's Sarah Studley. Minister Studley, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and thank you for taking my call. I'm happy to take your call. Right off the bat, when we talk about this duty to document uh, work, it's over three years ago that the LeBlanc inquiry was in hand. The recommendation was to establish this duty to document legislation within six months, and it took all this time. Why? So it's an excellent question. I think it's a fair challenge. Um, so the Management of Information Act, which, you know, is, is what Bill 22, we're making changes to to accommodate the recommendation 15 of the Muscrat Falls report. Um, that applies to 160 public bodies, including core government. Um, so really, when we think about how we how how this is going to be implemented not only in government but also you know in any in many many organizations around the province um, we did a lot of time consulting with the organizations um, we you know got their feedback made some changes got their feedback made some changes um, it you know I, I agree uh, I would have loved to have brought this forward sooner um, I think now we're at a place where um, we have a strong uh, ability you know requirement for documenting important decisions 
Um, and but I guess on the other side, we also don't want to make it too onerous on these public bodies so that they have to go and hire a whole bunch of new staff to accommodate. So it's that kind of balance uh, we're trying to, to weigh here. I think most will acknowledge the fact that there are some pieces of information that can indeed absolutely be, be protected by cabinet secrecy and commercial sensitivities and HR issues. But Michael Harvey himself says that this particular, uh, this particular provincial government uh, proposed amendments gives leeway to keep documents secret. And more and more documents can be, you know, for instance, it's not good for anyone to simply put a piece of paper on the table at a cabinet meeting and say, no, that's a cabinet document. And he also goes on to talk about things like giving the label of client solicitor privilege far too frequently, which is not in the public's best interest because we've seen, if we only use Muskrat Falls, it's the protection of information that we should have had a look at that has really been to our collective detriment. And I've suggested the political detriment as well. Sure, and uh, so uh, um, the Privacy Commissioner did reach out with that concern. Uh, so we did consult with the Privacy Commissioner on numerous occasions. Um, so the Justice, uh, the Minister of Justice yesterday said in the House of Assembly when we were discussing this um, that this does not exempt the Cabinet decision-making process from the duty to document. And I think we need to be careful here is, is duty to document and documenting decisions and records and record management is different than public access to that information. Sure. And so the privacy commissioner, the information privacy commissioner, he has uh, oversight of ATIPA, you know, which is the access to the information that government has. But we're talking about recording the decision. Um, and so cabinet is not and will not be exempt from that process. They have to. Uh, you know, we'll have a, d a definition of what's an important decision, and cabinet will not be exempt from that. Mr. Harvey also go goes on to say, in reference to the lack of independent oversight, so it's basically, in his words, it's a just trust me scenario. So, uh, absolutely not. Um, so, Minister, uh, the Privacy Commissioner has asked uh, in, in our consultations with him that he be given special powers to selectively, his uh, quote, selectively monitor and audit. Um, the implementation of the Management of Information Act. And so that is currently, he does not currently provide oversight of that act. And we have an Auditor General, right, who, who we've just, who last year we gave more money to and more expanded the scope of the Auditor General. Um, so this absolutely has independent oversight uh, with the Auditor General. Um, and we have mechanisms where, you know, the public or the Public Accounts Committee, which I used to sit on, can direct the Auditor General to do a performance audit of something. Um, but we're also, you know, this will be the law, right? So um, the next time, you know, if there's another Muskrat Falls inquiry, I hope there's not anything like that. But, um, you know, the, the permanent head of the public body will be legally accountable and responsible for ensuring that the decision is recorded um, according to this legislation. You know, things changed a number of years ago regarding how government did business. We went from written briefing notes to verbal briefing notes, and that was a real red flag for many of us who thought, wait now, so I'm not going to be able to put forward an ATIP request to see exactly who was involved in decision-making at the highest levels with massive amounts of money and long-term, decades-long implications. So we've gone from there to Bill 69, which was I, my suggestion is was the unraveling of the PCs as the uh, government party, uh, party in power all the way to today. So if you're going to offer comfort to people in the province who need to see this information, because we're all going to pay the price for information that we were shielded from in the past, what should we know about this concerns for Michael Harvey and government's commitment to be the, the buzzwords of campaigning, of cam uh, uh, accountability and transparency? Don't seem to jive with this approach. Your thoughts? 
So I guess to your preamble there, I, I would disagree about the verbal brief. You know, I get a lot of written, I only get written briefings. Um, I get documents for everything uh, and they're A-tipped and, and they're released. There might be a section that's redacted. Um, but everything I receive as minister of a very large department is in a written uh, information note. And then every time I make decisions, there's a decision note. And those can also be requested from the public. Um, so I, I would disagree about the, the verbal briefings. Um, that is absolutely not my experience whatsoever. So what we're, what we're doing in Bill 22, it will require all 160 public bodies to, re, uh, to record all important decisions. And a record of important decision, it would have to be uh, complete, comprehensive, accurate, and timely. So those are the four criteria we'll, we're requiring for an important decision. And I think it's also important to understand what's an important decision for core government or for my department. It might be a different level of decision for the Credit Union Deposit Guarantee Corporation, who oversees the credit unions in the province. So uh, we, we have a suite of uh, information and tools ready for those public bodies to help them figure out you know, what are important decisions for them. And I would also like to reiterate uh, to your listeners, Patty, that uh, if and when Bill 22 gets wireless sent, uh, we will have the strongest duty to document legislation in Canada. So right now, B.C. is the only only province in Canada that has duty to document legislation. We've taken a very similar approach as B.C., uh, but we've gone further than B.C. So we will be stronger than B.C. and have the strongest duties to document legislation in Canada. Regarding Michael Harvey, one more time, he recused himself for any further investigation into the cyber attack of the Meditech system. You know, the whole concept of inherent bias, does that mean that the government maybe doesn't trust Michael Harvey to have an independent, clear-thinking mind? Because we need him to have exactly that, and we need the government to have faith in that office. Um, it's, it's a tricky relationship, right? Because, so, he's a statutory officer appointed by the House Assembly, but, you know, I'm elected by the and accountable to the voters in the fine district of Mount Sio here in the metro region. Um, and so, as you know, we're elected, and the members of the House of Assembly are elected. And um, you know, Michael Harvey, he's an expert in his field. Um, he was a, a assistant deputy minister before you know going into this role. Um, so he's a person, just like any any of us. Um, and I think we've seen with our statutory offices, you know, they're not always perfect. Um, minister, uh, minister Hogan has directed a review of the statutory offices because, you know, some of them are suing each other. And I know the privacy commissioner. I don't think he's involved in any of that. But um, I guess. I think it's important to understand that as an elected official, I'm accountable to the people of my district. And, you know, as, as the 40 of us, we are accountable for the people in our district. These statutory offices uh, account, are accountable to us. And so I, I highly value, um, you know, the privacy commissioner's expert opinion. But I think there's a difference, you know, and we, we take his concerns um, very seriously. But we don't have to do exactly what all the statutory offices uh, said, you know, and, and I, I think it's it's it would not be wise for us to have that as practice that, you know, the 40 of us elected people, you know, we're not serving the master of the statutory office of the house assembly. Hmm. Okay. Uh, I just want to get a couple more before I run out of time regarding digital government. You know, do we have a timeline, not only on the digitization of our insurance, uh, the digital ID for insurance, but most importantly with health. Because we just talked about the hack into the Meditech system and some of the recommendations from the federal government with the bilateral agreement for healthcare transfer dollars includes the digitization or digital ID for healthcare. Uh, where are we on that process and do we have a timeline for implementation if indeed it's coming? Um, so that I guess would not be, I wouldn't understand it I guess the way you've described it. So at the moment um, we do share anonymized 
high-level data with CanHite. I can't remember what that's called, but it's like the Canadian health uh, organization that oversees, um, you know, the data. And so we will continue to do that, and I believe that might change a bit, but um, there's absolutely no suggestion of kind of any any extra there's no personal information being shared with the federal government. It's kind of all aggregate, higher-level information. Um, and I guess we are, I think, uh, I'm pretty sure Minister Osborne's announced this already uh, around the health information system. You know, that's certainly something we need to kind of up the game on, which I know is uh, a, a few years away, but it's certainly in the works. Um, and that will significantly improve the healthcare experience and, uh, you know, allow a lot of efficiencies within our healthcare system. If I mischaracterize what the federal government was saying regarding healthcare transfer dollars and digital records, how should I be thinking about that or talking about that? Because I, I need to understand it so I can talk about it with the listeners. Sure. So I guess the thing maybe that scared me off was, uh, you know, the digital ID. So I just want to be really clear that there's zero connection with anything digital ID related and healthcare. So those are, are completely unrelated topics. Um, so and, and I'm not an expert on the healthcare issue, but um, there will be, we will be sharing more anonymized data, uh, high-level information with the federal government, um, as will all provinces. And that's, I think, just you know, I think my understanding is the federal government has an interest in making sure that we're all healthier. And as a province, you know, we do too. And I know Premier Fury um, has made some strong uh, ambitions. He's said some strong, you know, we have ambitions around you know being healthy, uh, much healthier as a province. Um, so I think it's around just, you know, that overall anonymized data of how healthy we are and some of those metrics, um, you know, wait times, all that kind of stuff shared with the federal government. So because we use wait times and measure them against national standards or national benchmarks. So does anonymized data, high level data include how many people have a doctor, what kind of doctor they have, how many specialists we have in different disciplines? Is that what high level anonymized data means? Um, I, I'm not an expert in that area, but I would assume so. Um, you know, for patient, in terms of who doesn't have a family doctor, you know, I, I have to make a plug for Patient Connect. Um, so if anyone doesn't have a doctor, please go to Patient Connect online. I don't have the phone number in front of me, but really that's how, our, you know, as a government, we're using to prioritize where the next uh, family care, the collaborative care, care clinics go. So I, I do want to reiterate, anyone who doesn't have a family doctor, register so that we can have, um, we know where the need is greatest. Absolutely. For folks who need to register with uh, Patient Connect, which is the way I got a family doctor, the toll-free number is one 913 4679 And I'll keep that if you didn't have a chance to jot it down for the listeners. I appreciate the time, Minister. Thank you so much, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. As Sarah Studley, she is the minister responsible for Service NL and Digital Government, also the Office of the Chief Information Officer. Let's take a break for the news. Don't go away. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back. Let's see here. Let's go to line number two. Bruno, you're on here. All right. Hi, Patty. How are you? The best kind. How about you? Good. Um, first of all, I'd like to just comment on uh, the concerns that the insular fishers have uh, with their crab quota. You know, 30 years ago, the federal government effectively got rid of most of the inshore fishers um, with the collapse of the cod fishery that I'd been warning about for years and that uh, it was ignored until the draggers couldn't catch any more cod. Well, 30, we're 30 years on now and uh, the survival of all of that has been the shellfish fishery, uh, crab in particular. 
And uh, now that that stock is in decline, the federal government is doing exactly the same thing. They're targeting the inshore for extinction. And uh, your fishers have expressed that very uh, well, and they know what's going on, that they're left with so small a quota that they can't ever catch up, and that the only thing to do is to consolidate, sell it to someone else, and it ends up moving more and more of the quota into the hands of the multinationals and away from the inshore. It's sad, but I don't see anyone uh, willing or able, particularly not the FFAW, that's been part of the problem because they've betrayed the inshore for the last 30 years. But I think I'll leave that at that for now. Okay. Uh, this past week, the International Panel on Climate Change issued another report, and I find it stunning, actually, Patty, that so few people, even at this point, don't understand what the acronym IPCC stands for. Um, the latest report says, make no mistake, no more fossil fuel sources can be opened if the world is serious about living up to its commitments and avoiding significantly worse climate crisis. Now, the 1.5C goal was agreed in the landmark 2015 Paris Agreement and has been reinforced by global leaders several times since. The latest IPCC report stresses what missing it would mean uh, and it makes pretty uh, dire predictions. And uh, the one thing it says on gas and others, we need to stop conflating local demand with the desire for multinational companies to reap profits until well after 2050 by opening fast new fields for export. So basically they're saying if we are to have a planet, uh, a survivable planet, no new extraction plans and uh, just before we started our conversation i was re-watching a ctv story about what happened to the west coast and to the survivors uh, after that hurricane and uh it, it makes it clear that the, that, the, that there's going to be more of this and i've actively tracked the weather it, uh, that sweeps by my Cape Breton home and, uh, and usually on to uh, Newfoundland. But most often, it's not the southwest corner that really got devastated in, this, in that hurricane. More often than not, it's the worst of it uh, gets hit at the Avalon Peninsula. If that pattern continues and we continue to ignore the weather bombs and climate that will result of not stopping putting carbon into the atmosphere, it'll be a disaster for the Avalon in particular. And if one of those bombs hits the Avalon directly, it will mean tremendous loss of life, tremendous loss of property and infrastructure. So, Aren't you prepared finally to say we got to stop all this nonsense with developing new fields and making weak excuses about how we're going to keep needing fossil fuel 
the, the IPCC, the scientists of the world say, no more extraction or we won't have a habitable planet. They're making it very clear and they're saying that we've got to get that done before the end of this decade or we're done. We're toast. And yet we continue to make plans for grandiose plans for expansion that will not serve the interests of the people of Newfoundland and Labrador, only in the interest of those multinational companies that are horny to extract oil at all costs, at any cost. I'm terrified by what this report says. What about you, Patty? Well, I mean, luckily uh, for me, I'm not in a position of authority to make any of those decisions like uh, Minister Gibo would be or Minister Parsons or Premier Fury or anyone else who actually makes these types of decisions. Uh, the question I think that no one is able to answer, though, is also how do you replace whether it be industrial or commercial applications that rely on fossil fuels overnight. Like, how does that work? I, th I think that's lost in the conversation. I think the warnings have been out there. The warnings are dire, and they should be of concern to everybody. And it can indeed be driven by multinationals and their impact and their lobbying efforts and the amount of influence that they have, whether it be oil or pharmaceuticals or what have you. But for all the applications at this moment in time that require fossil fuels, it, specifically commercial and industrial, until we can figure out how to replace those in short order, this conversation is just going to be circular in nature forevermore. No, no, so it's not it's not going to be circular if we take it seriously, because no one is suggesting that we have to stop using all fossil fuels now, but uh, not develop any new sources. And as quickly as possible, this report says, get out of uh, the use of fossil fuels by using our own domestic supplies. Sure, we have sure enough of domestic supplies here in Canada to do for our domestic consumption, which is what that IPCC report says we should do. No one's suggesting that we're going to throw the switch overnight and expect that we're going to live uh, without any oil uh, in the future, but we should be moving heaven and earth to get away from it. And in the meantime, using our domestic supplies not to make the oil and gas companies rich. And, and uh, certainly we shouldn't be giving the oil and gas companies subsidies from our federal government to make these developments uh, in the destruction of our future. It's bizarre, don't you think? Uh, yeah, again, I'm not in the business of making those decisions, but uh, I appreciate the time. I'm going to the break, Bruno. Take good care of yourself. Okay, but Gilbo says that he's going to have to look long and hard at this now. We'll have to see what that means, won't we? We will. Take care. You too. Bye, Bruno. All right, uh, let's go ahead and take that break. When we come back, Georgina wants to talk about doctors, and then we'll talk about protected areas. Don't go away. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one, Georgina, you're on the air. Huh? Hello. Uh, my name, hi. Go right ahead, you're on the air. Okay. Um, first of all, thank you for taking my call. And my name is Georgina Allery, and I'm calling from Harbor Breton. Uh, first of all, I certainly would like to send a big thank you to all the doctors and nurses at uh, Central Newfoundland Regional Health Center in Grand Falls, uh, the Health Science uh, Emergency Department, and the Special Care Unit in uh, St. John's for taking care of my dad. Um, my dad had a, had a, had a fall there about five or five or six days ago, uh, there was no uh, no doctor here in Harbour Britain. We were on an emergency closure, and um, my dad had to 
be picked up by ambulance, travel two and a half hours off the road, and to discover that uh, he had broken his ribs and his spleen was bleeding. Um, near death, actually. So um, when it comes to health care, um, I guess everybody's got the same uh, same issues. You really don't uh, know what it is until something like this happens to you. And to travel up over the, the Hubbard Britain Highway two and a half hours up the road, and not knowing what's going on uh, in that in that ambulance, um, the paramedics are acting as doctors. God love them. Um, unbelievable. They got my 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 dad to the to the hospital safely, which I can't thank them enough. It's a two and a half hour drive over the highway in the best of times. And I can remember while we were driving up there that I saw that ambulance had stopped. And I said, my God, Diane, to my sister, something is wrong. Our dad has passed. Who's getting out to ask? And we were arguing. We said, we go together. And we walked out, and the paramedic said, blood pressure, very, very low. Um, he's, he's sick. We had to go. And they boogied on. And, of course, we went behind frightened to death. So when we got to Grand Falls, of course, they did all the necessary testing, whatever, whatnot. My dad, my dad had to be given blood, and there was no air ambulance available, and my dad had to be, um, of course, by road ambulance to St. John's, which I think took like six hours, and I think he got in at like 2.30 in the morning. And thank God that my dad survived. That's what I'm thankful for. Of course. Very. But I'm, I'm the former mayor of Harbor Britain. I sat on the committee there two years during COVID where all the leaders in, our, in, in the Costa Bays sat back and we, we'd done a health care plan for um, the Costa Bays. And um, to hear, I think it was yesterday, day before, but the family care units announced, I think they announced 10. And I did not hear Harbor Britain. I would like for someone to confirm to me that we are part of that of that plan. Are, are, are we number 11? And they're not telling us. Because healthcare, we are two and a half hours away. We're, we're, look at any anywhere in the province. We are the longest drive. Yeah, you're not on this list for the next 10. Uh, before we get into where they are, what was involved or included in your regional health plan that you say you, you sat on the committee uh, creating? Oh, well, you know, I have to have like five doctors, to have an ACP, uh, um, to have uh, uh, specialists that, uh, that we, you know, where, um, where a teen effort basically would be just like a bigger, bigger centers, but in, in the coastal base. And... Um, I, I thought that it would be it, it would be ideal, and actually, one of the things that was in that was virtual care, which I myself actually only there about two weeks ago. Um, I went to uh, to um, to the hospital here in Harbour Breton, and got triage. Then the ACP, uh, uh, you know, gave me a thorough examination. Then he went and spoke to the doctor, and the doctor came back. That's absolutely wonderful. If that was available to, for my dad there last Friday. I would, have, I would certainly would have accepted that because actually that ACP would have went on the ambulance with my dad. Is that an advanced care paramedic? Is that yes, what that it means? Is. Okay. it is. It is, exactly. Okay. And, uh, you know, and, and if, if that was available to us uh, last Friday, I certainly would have, I certainly would appreciate that too. 
But I mean, the thing is, is that I, I can assure you that if, if 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 anybody right now is going into train as a paramedic, you would think that your destination is going to be point A to B in fifteen half an hour, fifteen minutes to an half an hour. But I mean, for two and a half hour drive off the highway, and you're 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 their doctor. Like like to me, it just doesn't make sense. And then you hear about all this funding, say for. Well, of course, if, it, if you know, for family physicians, we'll give you this bonus. If it's for a doctor, we give this bonus. As, where does the paramedic stand here? Like, I got a friend here in Harbor Britain, a young lady, uh, got a young family, two kids, married here with her home, and she took it up on herself to uh, to uh, to go into this uh, ACP program. And of course, uh, you know, try for unemployment to help her, you know, help her through 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 the uh, the course, and she got denied. Like, where is the government? If you got someone who's willing to, to step up to the plate and, and, and she says, I'm doing this for, for my community, like, where's the funding there for that? You know, shouldn't, shouldn't, shouldn't the government look at that too? Well, isn't that part and parcel with some of the most recent bonus or incentive uh, dollars that have been dangled for rural and more remote communities on the sliding scale? The more remote it is, the more the bonus is? Yes, yeah, it should be. I, 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 I agree totally. And, you know, and everyone living in Newfoundland, we're in rural Newfoundland. We've got an aging population. Um, but then you look at the other side of it, who, who's, who's going to want to move here? Isn't that a big part of the problem, though, Georgina? Because, look, Harbour Breton and that part of the province is beautiful. It, it is. It is. It absolutely is. And, you no, know, for... Is. I mean, I, I, I was, like I said, I was part of the council for eight years. I mean, when it comes to your boardwalks, your arenas, we got that, we got uh, a pharmacy here, uh, gas stations. I mean, top of the line. It's a beautiful part of the province to come here. But I know there in the news not very long ago, they had, I think it was three part-time doctors uh, for, say, for, uh, for Harbour Britain. But, I mean, with all honesty, sending one doctor down here for, like, three or four days, you're going to wear them out. They're not going to stick around here. I ran into a situation there a couple of weeks ago where I hadn't needed to see a doctor, and I called on a Sunday, and... Um, well, of course, they said it had to be an emergency. I won't, I won't abuse the system. I'll wait for the morning to, to go to, to his clinic and to find out that he left. He left because one doctor can't keep up with all of this. I mean, when you talk about Harbor Breton, it's not only Harbor Breton, it's Hermitage. It's, it's all down over the road. I mean, you know, it, it, it's, it's crazy. But I'd like to know, you know, you know, can, are we going to be part of this, this family cares unit? And if we are, someone let us know. And I know our council and our leaders, I mean, I know they talk uh, weekly. Inform us. Inform us what's happening. Give us, give us you know, some sense of security. Right now, my dad came home yesterday, but he's got like six to eight weeks that he has to recuperate. And if he should hit his side, he's going to have a bleed, which he needs to see a doctor again immediately. Are we going to be on, on emergency closure again? Is he going to be lucky the next time? Maybe he's not. My dad is 80 years old, right? He deserves better. It's, it's, it's crazy. And I, I really do think that we need to make some noise. I know with regards to Bonavista, they've been in the, in, the, in the media all the time. We've had our tragedy here. We had a tragedy here, I think, soon be a year where a young girl had, had passed away. If there was a doctor here and she could, and she could have saw the doctor here, who knows? She might have survived. And I'm hoping that she would have because I've, I've got trust in. We, we had the best of doctors. We had the best of nurses here in Harbour Britain. There's nothing against them. 
They're the ones taking all the abuse. They're not the ones that we should be speaking out to. They're just doing their job. Absolutely. You know, the difficulty in recruiting any healthcare professional in different parts of the province is probably the most difficult, complicated task that is on the table or the desk of anyone working for us. And that, uh, I, I guess, starts with the leadership coming from uh, Dr. Megan Hayes, who's the uh, deputy minister responsible for that portfolio. But the 10, just to remind folks, the 10 areas that we'll see one of these 10 newly announced family care clinics yep. are Lab West, Port of Basque, yep. Grand Falls, Windsor, Clarenville, Deer Lake, White Bay, Kittiwake, Gander, Bonavista, Conception Bay North, and another one for the St. John's area. It goes on, and the government's quick to say, a lot of it depends on uh, availability of healthcare workers and other resources for these clinics, but you have to imagine. I don't have no earthly idea what the next batch will look like, but that 10 makes it 18 on the way to 35 over five years. If there's not one in Harbor Breton, then someone's not paying attention. Well, most definitely. And, you know, I, I like to the resident of Harbor Breton, I think that we need to come together. We need to make some noise. Uh, like I said, if our leaders are, are on, on uh, uh, meetings every week, let us know what's happening. Like, give us some sense of security. You know, if, if not, I mean, uh, I have to be honest, I don't know what's going to happen. Well, I mean, uh, we can see what's happening because people are moving. I mean, we had a young family that moved here in, 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 in the fall, and they moved, they yeah, he, that family packed up and left there a couple of weeks ago. I got two small children. At least if I'm in a, in, in a bigger center, I can avail to some kind of services. There's nothing here, and we're two and a half hours out, out, like from say from the first emergency center, which is Grand Falls. And like I said, I'm not here uh, uh, making bad talk against our nurses that we have here in Harbor Britain because they're absolutely wonderful. They're godsend. I mean, I saw, I see it myself. Uh, I'm, I'm out out in the public, but. With all honesty, someone needs to wake up, and I, I get it. I know that there's the health care issue right across, right across the province and country. I get it. But we're two and a half hours after beaten path, and I think someone needs to wake up and help us in this area. I appreciate the time this morning, Georgina. Thank you very much. Thank you, too. Take Bye-bye. care. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, it is time for the news. When we come back, Graham Wood, you stay right there. He's the chair of the Wilderness and Ecological Reserves Advisory Council, WERAC. Don't go away. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Uh, Let's go. Line number three. Say good morning to the chair of the Wilderness and Ecological Reserves Advisory Council. We know it is WERAC. That's Graham Wood. Hi, Graham. You're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you doing? Excellent today. Thanks. How about you? Good, good. Finally, I've been able to reply to a couple of things that have happened in the last month or so uh, with letters uh, in the... uh, in Saltwater regarding the, our smiling land and on guard for thee. That was written by Juanita Mercer. So where are we? What's the update that you have for us? Well, basically, uh, we've been tasked by the minister, Minister Davis, to meet with indigenous groups as part of our recommendations, our 15 recommendations that we put to government regarding protected areas. And so uh, over the last two months, uh, we've met with the MFN and the uh, with Halapu to uh, talk about, you know, what they see as their priorities for protection in the province. So uh, really that's, uh, that's the key thing that we've done the last uh, two months. So- and uh, we've, uh, the board has met and uh, we've recommended emergency protection for Charlie's place until we gather all the information regarding the ecosystem there and the uh, particular species that uh, may be endangered there with that uh, carnivore pulp and paper cut in Charlie's place. 
So what are some of the key recommendations? Give us some of the priorities. Well, the key, one of the key recommendations is to implement a protected areas plan. And so we've developed uh, for the minister a plan of implementation, but we've had not had any response to, uh, to that yet, right? Uh, we know that uh, part of the, the plan for uh, climate change remediation would, uh, was not given a strong uh, influence in the government's plan uh, regarding protected areas. So we've engaged with indigenous groups. And uh, so we're looking at, you know, the government moving ahead on our recommendations that we've, uh, that we've forwarded and a, and a plan for nature, you know, a plan for nature uh, recommendations for these ecological reserves around the province. So there's a federal target and a provincial target for percentage of land mass and waterways to be protected. Where are we and what's the goal? Well, we're at 6.9% in this province, and the goal that the government's the number of governments have uh, have approved was 17% by 2020, and uh, 25% by 2025, and 30% by 2030. So uh, we're really way behind. We're the second worst in Canada, next to PEI in terms of protected areas, and and we're hoping that the minister and and cabinet can move ahead in in trying to start phase two so we can uh, meet with local area groups and uh, and begin the, you know the plan of uh, various protected areas that we see as priorities so if i remember correctly so the plan that was released i'm going to say it was in 2020 it was some 25 years in the making you lost a couple of board members who were uh miffed about the big delay in this i think it was uh, bill montevecchi and victoria neville so Yep. Inside of this phase two, and just tell people what a protected area now looks like, because people, when they hear it, they think that all of a sudden uh, areas of the province that they have uh, gone to, whether it be to berry pick or to hike or to walk or to do whatever, they think all of a sudden they no longer have access in full to these areas. What does it actually mean to protect an area? Well, really what it means is that we're going to protect it for future generations. Uh, we want people to be able to access these areas. That's one of the misinformation that was put out there initially when the plan was posed uh, in 2020, that, uh, you know, all of a sudden there were going to be major restrictions. We're not saying that at all. What we want is we want to be able to protect those areas from industrial development so that local people can continue to use these areas in their traditional patterns and traditional ways. So, uh, you know, all of that kind of got pushed to the wayside. And, you know, with COVID happening, uh, we were unable to have, uh, you know, person-to-person meetings with local area stakeholders. And so hopefully now that we can move ahead, if the minister can give us jurisdiction to move ahead, to have these consultations and look at what are the areas, if those particular areas are, are defined or if they wish to look at boundary changes or if they look, wish to look at other areas so that we can allow the general public to be able to utilize these areas, but also to protect them from industrial development. So if there's existing trails, what have you, people will continue to be allowed to use their ATVs or to walk them. And for uh, waterways, just no building additional new docks, what have you. Do I remember correctly that there was also a proposed uh, time frame after an area is protected for further exploration for economic activity, whether it be mines or otherwise? Was that like a 10-year window where some things could continue before the full-on protection kicked in? Yeah, a number of those reserve areas, proposed reserve areas were put in as transitional zones, and those transitional zones would allow for, uh, I'll say, mining activity or uh, 
uh, exploration, uh, as well as some forestry areas, but mainly that that would protect them for 10 years uh, so that we would allow uh, those particular interests, especially those that have claims to some areas. Uh, one example would be Fushu Bay down on the south coast. But, you know, when you look at those transitional areas, we, we, we see those as important economic development. We have to partner with, you know, what's happening in the province. And uh, at the same time, we have to make sure that we protect those areas. What about uh, hunting, trapping, fishing, and what have you? Not a problem. Not a problem at all. Hunting, trapping, fishing, that's, those areas would not be affected. Those activities would not be affected by anything that would happen in the ecological reserve. The important thing is if we're looking at, say, if we have a special species at risk in the area, so that would be identified before anything would be set up and, and plans we'd put in place. So each of those proposed reserves would have its own management plan. And uh, that would all be developed in, uh, in, uh, in consultation with local stakeholders and local people who have interest in those areas. Now that we've seen the province lift the ban or the moratorium on wind-related projects, and there are some 1.7 million uh, uh, acres or hectares, pardon me, of crown land that are in play potentially, not all of it will be gobbled up. There is a map out there, a land use atlas. Does any of those proposals that we know about today and the crown, or pardon me, the, the land use that we've seen proposed for possible wind projects, do any of them overlap or fall into some of these 32 protected or suggested protected areas? Well, right now, we know those areas have been outlined by, uh, by government, uh, those 1.5 million hectares. Uh, the only one that I'm aware of right now uh, that was in conflict with uh, a proposed protected area was, uh, was Cape St. George. And we wrote a letter to the minister and to government outlining our concerns about the uh, wind developments happening in a proposed ecological reserve. We want to be able to keep those uh, reserves intact until we have the public consultations with local groups and uh, people in in uh, in various areas across the province. Because I mean, I I think it's uh, illogical to think that all of those wind proposals are viable and are ever going to see the light of day, and then consequently, all that land that people are worried about. There is certainly, if some of these proposals go ahead, it will swallow up a good swath of land, but. I'd be shocked if there was 1.7 million hectares of crown land all of a sudden uh, peppered with windmills across the province. Uh, anything else you want to add to the uh, program this morning, Graham, before we say goodbye? No, I think, I think it's really important that the public start, you know, when we talk about uh, probably what went on in over, COVID, over the COVID years, that uh, a lot of people started to get out and look at the ecosystems in Newfoundland and, and the, beautiful, the beautiful environment that we have. And I think there's one thing that everybody has to realize that we have to protect this land as much as we can to uh, maintain some, some continuity between various areas and hopefully places where animals can move freely from one protected area to another protected area. And that would allow for, you know, all, all kinds of issues to, to help with climate change, with mitigation of climate change, and also ecotourism, you know, uh, we see that these protected areas, if they go ahead, that we can really develop local uh, ecotourism opportunities for people in those communities. Uh, last one, it just popped in my mind. There is undoubtedly going to be, given the global appetite and thirst for some critical minerals of which we have uh, wealth of in Labrador, 
give us some idea about the snapshot regarding Labrador suggested protected areas because the mining business does have a big, bright future. And, of course, everything comes with an environmental price tag. So what are your thoughts about what we might see in Labrador or very likely see in Labrador for expansion of mining opportunities and protected areas? Well, I think one of the key things about Labrador is a little bit different than Newfoundland, even though we deal with indigenous groups here in Newfoundland. In Labrador, we have land claim issues that uh, that relate uh, there. Uh, but one of the recommendations that we made, recommendation number 12, is to develop a collaborative conservation planning process in Labrador. So uh, we, over the years, many years, wilderness uh, areas and protected areas have uh, have looked at Labrador, some areas like Lac Joe and other areas that are of interest, as well as the Eagle River uh, Park. Um, you know, these are some areas that have been looked at in Labrador, but that's a whole new thing, and, and we haven't really uh, dealt with that uh, because of the overlying uh, land claims issues. And so we would have to work very closely with Indigenous groups in Labrador and see what they see as, they, as their priorities for protection. I appreciate the time this morning, Graham. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. It's Graham Wood. He's the chair of WERAC. So we protect a very small percentage of the land and the waterways in this province. And, of course, when this report was finally released after 25 years in the making, there was some immediate pushback, and some of it was really quite something, especially from certain groups on the Northern Peninsula that comes to mind. And it was not welcomed in certain corners, but... You only get one opportunity for environmental protections. And look, every bit of industrial development comes with an environmental price tag. We all know that to be true. So glad it's not me and my decision-making that has to strike a balance between economic activity and any of these protected areas that have been proposed, some 32 of them. Let's take our final break of the morning. When we come back, the show is up to you. Don't go away. This is Open Line on VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Uh, sometimes I think like, I need someone in here to, dis- to decipher some of the emails that we get. But, uh, yeah, uh, I don't know what people w- want to talk about. Of course, we try to pepper the top of the program with a bunch of different issues to see if it does indeed pique your interest to the point that where you want to call the program. But it is kind of remarkable that we've had very little reaction to some of the major issues going on in Ottawa, for instance. So whether it be the RCMP investigation into how and where the leaks are coming from, but it's remarkable that, look, of course, election integrity is critically important for all of us. It doesn't matter what party you support. But very little uptake. I guess people are just, you know, consumed with what's right in front of them and some of the concerns that I have, whether it be with cost of living or access to a doctor or whatever the case may be. But the news from last evening and into this morning about some, again, leaked information. It's also, I think, important. So one guy gives me a hard time because I think it's important to follow the entirety of stories versus what's just good for his political agenda. But knowing how these leaks are happening is also pretty important stuff because it won't be long. Sometime in the future, of course, we're very likely going to see a change in government. It flops back and forth. You know, you get two or three terms of one party and then the other party wins an election. So at some point, let's just look into the future and say the Conservatives hold the seat of government whenever. At what point do we concern ourselves with how this information is coming to light, who's actually providing it, the veracity of it? I mean, if we have an, uh, an unofficial leak coming from our intelligence agencies, that's not good for any party. Now, we've got to have the information in front of us so that we can make legitimate decisions. But this one about the liberal member, well, he's former liberal member, now sitting as an independent, this hand-on guy, and the allegations that he was advising Beijing officials to hold off 
on releasing Michael Spavor or Michael Korvik because it would benefit the opposition kind of doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But if this is actually true, then we've gone from you know someone putting Chinese money into some 11 candidates. Who they are, we don't know. This one makes the story entirely different. So whether it be that or Katie Telford's testimony that's coming up before the 14th of April in front of one of the parliamentary committees, not the ethics committee where people would like to see her testify, uh, David Johnston as the so-called special rapporteur and people's thoughts on it. And, of course, many of these uh, conversations are simply guided by political leanings, but there's big stories to be told. And let's see if we get the final word this morning to line number one. Brian, you're on the air. Good morning, Paddy. How are you? Okay, how about you? I'm very good. Patty, the Liberals have given Pierre Pauliet a Christmas present before Christmas. How so? This, I think, when this um, scandal plays out, I, I think the people are going to turn against Trudeau. I really think so. And you know what? Scandals sometimes have a way of going around the neck of political parties. For example... Even children, even teenagers don't know about Watergate and that it was the, uh, it was the uh, conservatives in, in Washington who were basically uh, responsible for that. For what, sir? And I think it's going to be the Liberals. And I at one time voted Liberal. I don't vote anymore. The Liberals forever will be, will be uh, blamed for whatever turns out in this Chinese, it'll be hanging around their neck. Now, I know that a member of the Conservative Party in Ontario had to resign for somewhat the same thing. But I say, bye-bye, Mr. Trudeau. It's been nice knowing you. So what exactly do you think is the gift here? Because if we're thinking and saying that there has been foreign interference in elections just in 19 and 21, I think we're probably kidding ourselves. Uh, this, these types of issues regarding, you know, I think it's getting much worse now with how the Internet is being used. But between the Russians and the Iranians and the, uh, and the Chinese and the Americans, their influence on how people think and what they people see has been going on for quite a long time. So I don't think this is new. I also think that there's big questions to be asked about where's this information coming from? You know, that's true. true. You know, because if, say, for instance, you're a conservative supporter or a PPC or anyone, you're happy enough to use this, and so we should because it's massive conversation that has to be had here. But nobody's even questioning where the information is coming from or how accurate it is or the veracity of. But I don't know how that's not part of the conversation as well. Because, look, if anybody knew and did nothing about any foreign interference that was documented and briefed at the PMO level, then there is a massive problem for the prime minister. But we're all just accepting all of these leaks as 100% accurate. And I can't even make heads or tails of some of this, especially this one about this Han Dong uh, member, former liberal, now sitting as independent, and any unofficial back-channeling that he was doing. He denies it, but two separate national security sources apparently have been offering the same information. But it's remarkable to me we haven't had much conversation on this program about it because this is big stuff. Well, you know, another point is that Canadians have to, have to mimic the Americans, okay? When, uh, when I was a little boy, there was a scandal called the Christine Keeler scandal in Britain, and... Uh, after that was out of behold, Canada had one of their own. I forget what. The, oh, the, the girl, the girl or Munsinger, I'll say her. So we, we copy off of the other crowd. 
But, I, but back to my point, it's, and I one time voted liberal, but this time I think the, uh, the um, people are going to vote conservative. Pierre Pauliette, not my favorite man. He's a smart, smart man. And I think he's probably digging around the conservative party now, trying to find out other scandals there. But if not, I'd say that Pierre Pauliette is well on his way to the wherever the premier lives to. Thanks a lot, Patty. Appreciate the time, Brian. Yeah. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, it's <laughs> the goings on. We think that we've got somewhat of a mess on our hands here in the province, but I would suggest that the national conversations are really quite extraordinary. And also with the uh, first official state visit by President Biden to Ottawa, there were some thoughts that he might uh, extend the visit outside the capital city, but apparently not. They will be sticking to Ottawa. All right, let's check in on the Twitter box. Fascinating, that is. We're a VOCM Open Line. You know what to do. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. But, of course, this afternoon we will indeed be bringing you coverage of the budget from the uh, foyer, the Confederation Building. Noah Shepard, Richard Duggan, Linda Swain are currently in the budget lock-in. I'm making my way to Confederation Building now to see if I can absorb some 9 or $10 billion worth of information so I can be part of the 2 o'clock program. So we'll be there if you want to forward along some Questions, concerns, topics you think that we should focus on during our budget coverage starting at 2 o'clock here, running till 3 o'clock, you can send me a note on Twitter. But you got to do it in short order because when we go to the Confederation Building and go to these budget lock-ins, you have to forfeit your phone. So you leave your phone with the officials at the front which is actually a very welcome break for me to have a little break from my phone because that occupies too much of my time in my hand, as you know. All right, good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, all of the listeners, callers, emailers, tweeters. You're all right. We will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, Fonz King, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.